My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week, we are discussing something that's very near and dear to my heart. We are back in the realm of superhero fiction. And not only that, we are discussing my favorite Marvel superhero, Spider-Man. And we're discussing what is perhaps my favorite Spider-Man film. And the first movie I ever online went to bat for, uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Uh, well, I had an incredibly Shakespeare-heavy week this week. <laughs> it wasn't um, designed that way. It wasn't something I sort of sought out. It's just simply because I go by release date. And turns out that there was a period here that was just chock full of Shakespeare. And so uh, I have six different Shakespeare productions to talk about this week. Um, the first four of them all fall under the banner of The Hollow Crown. Have you guys heard of this? Vaguely. It's ringing some bells. Um, it's a BBC... I hesitate to call it a, a TV series because it's they're film adaptations of Shakespeare's mm. plays, but they're essentially taking ones that are within continuity of each other and producing them as a serial. Mm. So the first series, which is what I'm, I'm going to start talking about, uh, is the Henriad. So uh, Richard II, Henry IV, parts one and two, and Henry V. Then they the did histories. An, yes. And then they did another one a few years later, which I'm not going to be getting to for a little while. That was uh, the War of the Roses stuff. Um, and there was some talk a, a while back that they would maybe do a series three about the Roman plays, but that doesn't seem to come to fruition. And that's unfortunate because these are really, really good productions. Um, I'm going to go through them one by one. The first of them is uh, Richard II. It's a historical drama directed by Rupert Gould. It's based on the Shakespeare play of the same name. It's set in the late 1300s where the king, Richard II, um, it, He's played by Ben Whishaw. He's not a good king. He's uh, pompous. He's vain. He's kind of an idiot. And uh, he pisses off the local gentry, triggering an insurrection against him led by Lord Bolingbroke, played by Rory Kinnear. Um, Rookie mistake. Yes. Uh, this is just, it's a really exceptional adaptation. It, it brought the whole thing to life in such a vibrant fashion. I have seen a production of Richard II before, I have talked about it on the podcast. I, f I found that one to be kind of a miss. But this has a much different approach, a much different tone, and it unlocked the play for me. Uh, Richard is a brat. That's how they play him here. A, a real brat, but a complicated one. Um, he is a guy who genuinely thinks that he's king by divine right, that there is, uh, you know he and all of his fellow kings and queens in the world are appointed by God. And the play sort of, and the adaptation of the play sort of leans into that in the sense that there is a lot of religious imagery. Um, there's also sort of a little hint that exists in the play and also that they definitely have lent into here, considering they're adapting it all as a serial, um, that all of the civil wars and political upheaval that will follow th from the overthrowing of Richard II is because he's right is because God is essentially punishing them for getting rid of the rightful king. Hmm. Uh, but but Wishaw, he runs away with the film. It's such a different version of Richard II from the one that I saw Fiona Shaw do uh, in the other production. 
that I've seen. He is bitchy. He's stroppy. He's also kind of like heartbreaking when he wants to be. It It's a really fun performance uh, that is also very affecting and kind of expertly creeps up to the line of being camp without losing legitimacy. Um, the whole thing very pointedly refuses to give you a hero. It, it's very Game of Thrones. Uh, and that's no wonder, considering George R. R. Martin's inspirations for that series in, in British medieval history. Um, but the, the movie's very well shot and adapted. It uses cutaways and voiceover in a really interesting way. It'll cut a bit of a scene here or there and then make it into a separate one um, that takes place in another location just to give things a little more vibrancy. Uh, it, but it all makes sense within the narrative. It is being very faithful. It does show its budget a bit. This was a 2012 TV budget, which is not the same as a 2024 TV budget. Um, but it gains so much from the fact that this is a BBC production made in England and they're just sending people out to all the old castles that they've got littered around that country and filming uh, in the fields around them, you know, in the courtyards. So uh, it, it gains some scope from that. It has a lot of authenticity. And because this was such a big production for the BBC, the Hollow Crown stuff, um, they did it actually, it was sort of a part of a wave of programming that the BBC did for the 2012 London Olympics, sort of to promote English culture, British culture, um, in the while all eyes were on the country. Um, and so you've got just a score of exceptional Shakespearean actors across all of these. But in this first one, you get Patrick Stewart, David Suchet, um, David Morrissey, David Bradley, all the Davids, uh, they've all turned up. Um, Ian McKellen, sadly, was in New Zealand shooting the Hobbit movies, so he does not appear in any of these. Um, but it's really, really good, and you can find it available for streaming in Australia on ABC iView. Uh, I next saw Henry the Fourth, Part One, played by, uh, writ directed by Richard Eyre. Um, it's set years later. Bolingbroke has now become Henry the Fourth. He's now played by Jeremy Irons, uh, and he's become quite an ornery king. I will say that the casting of Jeremy Irons is uh, the point where they've, they've tried so much to stick to sort of um, historical accuracy in terms of the uh, the presentation of these. But in real life, there was only 11 years between the events of these two plays. And so Rory Kinnear becoming Jeremy Irons in 11 years has not happened. It's been longer than that since since uh, the, those plays, these adaptations came out and Rory Kinnear is still not accelerated that far into old age. But uh, he... Henry the Fourth disapproves of his son Hal, played by Tom Hiddleston. He's just sort of mucking around with thieves and drinking all day, um, including one of Shakespeare's most famous fool characters, the character of Falstaff, played by Simon Russell Beale. Uh, but Hal is forced to grow up when a fledgling rebellion begins against his father. This is a really sprawling coming-of-age story. It's not at all Henry the Fourth's story. Uh, they've called it Henry the Fourth, but really it is part one of a three-part Henry the Fifth play. Um, I get why they didn't name, why Shakespeare decided to split it up like that. I mean, he's not actually king until the third part of that three-part little series, but that's why it's the Henry ad. It's, it's really following this storyline quite closely. But it crafts an extremely effective rogues gallery in the form of these uh, scallywags that Hal spends all of his time hanging out with 
Falstaff is easily Shakespeare's best fool. I run up to against uh, the fool characters quite a lot in Shakespeare plays, not necessarily because of the way that um, Shakespeare's written them, but because they seem to be played so broad in mm. all of the productions I see these days because it's almost like pe- people are concerned that we're not going to understand it's meant to be funny, and so they just go so far with it. I but, think uh, there was a really great fall in the King Lear that Anthony Hopkins was in. And um, that was a character who really just... He was the fool in the sense that he told the king how it was, and that was the point of him. Yeah, but there's so many other ones, especially in the more comedy-centric Shakespeare plays, where every time I see a production that the Globe did or something like that, it's like... Every time they make a double entendre joke, they like grab their crotches, so we all know it's supposed to be sexual. And it's just like oh, waka waka. Exactly, it's very fuzzy bear. Um, but uh, Falstaff is fascinating because he's very complicated. He's an asshole, and he kind of knows he's an he's an unrepentant asshole. To put it that way, and he's very difficult to like, but at the same time, he has this charm to him that uh a good actor can make a real meal of. And they've got a good actor here in the form of Simon Russell Beale. He's very good. Um, he's quite a strong Shakespeare actor. I I really love his performances. Prospero in the uh, RSC pro shot of The Tempest from, I think, 2017. But his relationship with Hal here is very well illustrated and, and very well put together. Hiddleston is exceptional. Um, this is really where treating these as a series pays off that you get Hiddleston playing the whole arc for all three plays. Um, And indeed you get a lot of supporting actors who turn up in all three of them. It's got a bit of a, you know, cinematic universe kind of feel to it. Um, But Hiddleston is really brilliant. Although I would, will say that he needs far more time with irons than the play gives him. Um, There are lots of returning characters from Richard II. Uh, It, definitely seems like it was written the original play assuming that audiences were familiar with richard ii like this was is clearly meant as a sequel and what we understand modern day to be a sequel uh there are perhaps too many characters here though um with too little time given to the motivation of a lot of them that may be a problem of adaptation i do understand that this is a little bit cut down um from its uh original form but it's another version of these plays receiving a lot of clarity from this Hollow Crown sort of project. Uh, they stage a very large battle sequence at the end. Um, it's all really well pulled off in terms of aesthetic, in terms of production, costume design. It's just these people like crawling around in the mud, with, covered in blood, you know, with swords and things, and, you know, a grim, grey British sky with like dead trees all around like it's got an epic feel these are quality productions and uh this like the others um is on abc iview in australia of course followed that up with henry the fourth part two again directed by erie uh the rebellion is down but not out uh multiple fronts are stretching henry the fourth thin but he is becoming sick from an illness that he will die from um and hal is increasingly frustrated with falstaff and co and uh concerned about the fact that he's clearly going to have to become king soon and uh these guys are just not good influences on him um 
this is a much less successful second part, I think. Uh, I'm not sure that the whole thing, the whole Henry the Fourth project, needed to be two parts. There's a lot of padding. This is the Hunger Games Mockingjay part one and two of the Shakespeare mm. oeuvre. Um, but uh, the structure minimises part one's most compelling elements. You just don't get as much from this rogues gallery. You don't get as much of the coming-of-age story with Hal. He's separated from them. For far too long and there are some jumps in that progression of character and that progression from uh kid to king that could be better demonstrated than they are and uh it, it i again really wish that we had more time spent between henry the fourth and hal i think that's a dynamic that's really underused especially given the talent of hiddleston and irons the scenes that we do get with them are so good and you just wish you had more I mean, it's a stroke of genius to have them playing father and son. Yeah. Oh, there's a scene in the first one where Jeremy I just fucking slaps Tom Hiddleston, <laughs> which is uh, like, that's the great thing about Shakespeare is that there's a comparative to most other plays, um, definitely from now, but even from the time, he had so little stage direction um, because he was producing them and directing them and acting in them himself. So uh, he, he, just- he was... He changed things yeah. on the fly. He didn't need to write them in because he's just, oh, I'll tell Gary to do that. I don't need to write it down. Um, but the difference is you can come up with a scene like that and these plays do it often, these productions uh, for The Hollow Crown. They find these little pieces of texture. Like there's a, a snide, sarcastic remark that um, Hal makes in a scene with his father and Jeremy Irons just smacks him across the face and that's not in the script. But it's give such a charge to the moment and the way they've chosen to pitch the relationship between these two characters. Um, but the rebellion thread just sort of spins off into the historical wind. It's it's hard to follow because the time isn't spent uh, educating modern audiences on what all of the different dynamics here were. Obviously, at the time that these plays were performed, they were much closer to the actual event. Um, but uh, it, it just gets a bit confusing. You get a really fantastic finale, though, which, you know, spoiler alert for history, Henry IV dies and Hal becomes Henry V, uh, ends up cutting loose a lot of these uh, these people like Falstaff. It plays with audience sympathies in a really complicated way that I found quite fascinating. It's just brilliantly performed. And I will say that both parts have excellent supporting cast as well. In addition to the people I've already mentioned, you get people like Julie Walters, Ian Glenn, Alan Armstrong, Jeffrey Palmer. Again, these are uh, cream of the crop in terms of British Shakespearean actors. Uh, Like its brethren, it is available for streaming in Australia on ABC iview. Walters is a hell of a get. Yes. Uh, Lastly, for the uh, Hollow Crown ones, there is Henry V, which is directed by Thea Thea Sharrock. Hal is now Henry V. He is told by his advisors that he has a frankly kind of flimsy sounding claim to france um and decides that it's time to invade and uh things start to deteriorate pretty much the second he gets there which leads up to the incredibly famous historic battle of azincourt which is uh well known for being one of the most unexpected and lopsided results of of any military battle in uh western history this is a strong story anchored by Tom Hiddleston. It's it's much simpler in narrative and structure than the other stories in the Henry ad. It's a war story. It's a story of a king leading his army on a campaign to invade. Um, 
it's also much more jingoistic. It's very much in the England rules, France drools kind of mode, um, which can sometimes hurt it, especially given that there is this sort of hasty subplot about Henry V uh, crushing on this French princess that he ends up marrying. Um, but uh, it's it, that's sort of the trade-off. They give him the French princess in, a, in as part of the peace negotiations at the end of the play and at the end of the campaign in real life. So they are sort of like Shakespeare is just sticking to historical record here. Um, it still gives the interesting perspective to the French in a way that I found quite fascinating, even if it is so that they can ultimately be steamrolled by the um, superior specimens of uh, the Brits. They do this sort of cutaways to the scenes that are told from the French perspective. Um, there is this one scene that is entirely in French, unsubtitled. You don't know what they're saying. That's kind of daring. And that's how Shakespeare wrote it. He wrote a, a, a scene that was entirely in French. Um, it's shorter than most Shakespeare scenes. This may be five minutes long, but uh, it's smartly put together. So when you've got good actors, they can take it and they can establish the character's personality their intent, the gist of what they're saying to each other in such a way that um, we get it. And it's, it's actually really clever table setting and really clever writing in a way that you just don't see very often. I was quite impressed with it because for starters, I actually thought, oh, this is something interesting that the BBC has done, that they've translated a Shakespeare scene into French <laughs> and done it that way. But no, that's how Shakespeare did it. Um, it, if you actually look at the translation back into English, what he's writing is all incredibly basic. It's got none of the poetry that he's known for. But give the guy credit. He's he's writing in uh, a, a separate language to something, to the language that he wrote all of his other work in. And the effect is quite strong. Um, the play also offers some dark moments that have been analysed to Kingdom Come um, from all over the place. Uh some of the darker aspects of Henry's campaign, uh, Henry's character. There was actually even a um, a mock trial that was held featuring two Supreme Court justices in the US, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then uh, one of her conservative colleagues. They, they sat for a pretend trial as sort of like this cultural festival thing on whether Henry V committed war crimes or not, and they found him guilty. Um, turns out Shakespeare's a smart guy, like he's lacing all this stuff through in a really interesting and morally ambiguous way. And the whole film visualises the war in a really effective way. Again, you can still sometimes see the realities of the budget that they are doing this on a, um, on a 2012 TV budget when they're supposed to be, you know, so many people on the field, but you're clearly not seeing so many people on the field. You're seeing maybe 100. But... Uh, it carries over the supporting cast from Henry IV quite gracefully as well. Uh, Shakespeare didn't exactly land the symmetry and the crossover here entirely. I think that if, let's just put it this way, it's not what modern audiences would, would expect when it comes to when it comes to seeing this kind of continuing characters. Like Falstaff is just written off. He's killed off screen. Uh, and in fact, most versions of the play, including this one, um, add like a little dialogue-free scene uh, of Falstaff dying. Uh, most of the film versions, I should say. Uh, Branagh's did it too. Um, but it all gains a lot of power from being watched in succession. It's feeling like the conclusion of an arc that began with Richard II and is finishing here. 
Uh, but it's Hiddleston's show now. He is such a great performer of Shakespeare. Um, and he's no longer in competition with Beale and Irons. And so he just dominates the scenes that he's in. This one, unlike the others, not available for streaming on ABC iView, uh, at least not at the time that I checked. Maybe the ABC was in the process of re-airing all of the plays, and so they were coming online on iView as each one aired. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, I, The Hollow Crown, especially Richard II. Richard II is the best one of this series, but uh, that first series of The Hollow Crown, I highly recommend. Uh, I next saw two pro shots for uh, Shakespeare plays both of them from the Globe Theatre. The first of them is Henry VIII. It's a historical drama directed by Mark Rosenblatt. Like I said, it's a pro shot uh, done by the Globe Theatre. In it, Henry VIII, played by Dominic Rowan, is married to Catherine of Aragorn, played by Kate Duchesne, and counselled by the Machiavellian Cardinal Wolsey, played by uh, Ian McNeese. But rising tensions in court and Henry making googly eyes at his wife's handmaiden, Anne Boleyn, played by Miranda Raison, uh, end up causing some drama. So, you know, they can't all be winners. <laughs> uh, this is a turgid and moribund play that lacks wit, lacks intent. Um, it's largely accepted these days that it was co-written with John Fletcher, who succeeded Shakespeare as the in-house writer for the troupe that they were part of. And to be uh, fair, there was only so much that Shakespeare could write about the Tudors because obviously, yes. well, that's the interesting thing. I will, yeah. I will get to that. But he also, like, he wrote his entire oeuvre before he was fifty. I mean, yeah. the the, the fact that as many of them became as iconic as they did is uh, credit enough to him. But this is aimless and without purpose. It wanders through historical events without much connective tissue. It really doesn't seem like something that was written to tell a story because the story is all over the place. It feels like something that was kind of written to satisfy either public demand or private demand from the nobility. And that's the interesting angle that you've already hinted at here, Sean, is that Shakespeare was performing a lot of his plays for Elizabeth I. It is generally considered that this is a play that was written and performed for the first time after Elizabeth I has already died. But definitely considering that Henry VIII was Elizabeth's father, there is definitely a feeling here of uh, dual loyalties that the writers are struggling with. Um, I was very interested to see how much it would match our current view of Henry, given that we now as a culture perceive him to be, how best to put this, a serial wife killer. Um, yeah. A complete and utter bastard. In fairness, he only killed two of the wives. The rest either died from natural causes or got divorced. Yeah. Um, although, also to be fair... That is 200% more wife murders than the vast majority of men ever get to. Uh, this is half a story, too. It only ends with the birth of Elizabeth when he's still on wife number two. Um, there's a, a whole scene at Elizabeth's christening where a character has this big prophecy about how awesome she's going to be. Uh, it Wait, really... sorry. So I think that is kind of a – that is a glaring problem with, I think, that story, the fact that – the execution of Anne Boleyn was sort of the start of him going fucking insane, basically. Mm. Because uh of all of this politicking that was occurring within the court, 
because of war with France, not having war with France, uh, having the a contentious relationship with the Holy See, uh, establishment of the Royal Church, the of, Church England. of England, all of this stuff, the fallout from the divorce he had with uh, Catherine of Aragon, all of it sort of coalesces in the execution of Anne Boleyn, which really sort of sets the scene for the next couple marriages. Jane Seymour, Catherine Parr, the rest of them whose names escape my mind, sadly. The six, basically, yeah. Well, you're right. It, it leaves it as being, you're telling a story about this guy. You're telling essentially a biopic of Henry VIII. And you've left out all of the most interesting stuff about yeah. the life of Henry VIII in favor of doing this character polish, this reputation whitewash um, that really exposes the sentiment of the time and how it's tied Shakespeare and his collaborators' hands behind their backs. Um, it whitewashes Henry to an almost delusional degree, like it's walking this bizarre line where it's trying to simultaneously let him off the hook for everything whilst simultaneously also showing Anne Boleyn as a wonderful and uncorruptible person, even though, like, Henry VIII was like, she's terrible, she's got to be executed because of all sorts of really horrific, and my understanding is probably very trumped-up charges of stuff like incest and treason and all sorts of Scurrilous stuff. bullshit. Yeah, so it's, it's trying to walk this bizarre line where it's trying to be as nice as it can to both of Elizabeth's parents when in real life they ended up hating each other and one of them killed the other one. Like, it's such a strange, twisted family spat <laughs> that has uh, been so tangled, tangled and, like, contorted to not be an issue in this version. Um it gets a few jabs in, I will say. You can kind of, and maybe this is just my modern eyes, but there are some scenes where you're just like, oh, you've actually, you've snuck something in here, um, that you've you've gotten it past uh, whatever senses were looking over his shoulder here. That, you know, obviously, he Catherine of Aragon, he actually didn't get divorced from uh, his first wife. He got it, the, the, it annulled. Because yeah. essentially Catherine of Aragon had been married to his brother, and when his brother died, he had married Catherine of Aragon. And, and yeah. um, that he made something about how, oh, my conscience just can't take it anymore. Uh, that, you know, I just feel like this is not a not a, a, a proper marriage. And he ended up essentially leaning on a whole bunch of people to have the marriage annulled. Okay, and there so is, how did... Well, how it did was they... so that... Yeah. Just hang on. So It was yeah, so sorry. that he could marry Anne Boleyn. Yeah. But there's this scene where, um, you know, a whole bunch of people are watching the coronation of Anne Boleyn. And one of them says to the other one, well, I can't blame his conscience. <laughs> um, like, there are little moments like that where you're like, oh, Shakespeare's actually, he's sticking the knife in where he can. How um, about what... the portrayal of Wolsey? Because he was a contentious figure at the time as well. So that's the whole other part of it, is that it's acknowledging sort of mounting religious tensions in a way that definitely seems quietly designed to reinforce the Protestant party line. Uh, of the period. Again, we, we talked about it a bit on our V for Vendetta episode, I think, that this is a really long period, like several centuries period, that they're kind of in the beginning of here in England at the time that this play was done, of real suppression of Catholicism and sort of real uh, scapegoating and um, basically state 
state-sponsored attacks on Catholics. So there's very much sort of it's, it again feels like the whitewashing because it's it's doing all of this stuff where it seems like it's trying to reinforce a political agenda that all, there's all of these scheming Catholic priests that Woolsey is one of these people and um, it all just is is done in such a way that it seems to be driven by a desire to land some political scores rather than tell a story because it has no narrative to motivate it. Again, this feels like a play that was written to satisfy, I don't know, to satisfy a sort of audience demand or satisfy something that the nobility wanted. It doesn't feel like something that was written to satisfy Shakespeare. Uh, there's an overcomplicated stew of characters, plus the dialogue just ties itself in knots. And I kind of wonder whether this has to do with the um, the fact that this other fellow was so heavily involved. Most historians seem to believe that different acts are different, are different scenes are written by different people, that it's not like they're going back and forth and, and writing it together, but it's actually like Will's taking this one and John's taking the next one. And maybe that has something to do with it, that the fact that there's so much of Shakespeare's usual poetry just feels tortured. And the actors compensate for that by being just incredibly loud, shouting everything. I mean, Rowan's good. He doesn't do that. He kind of picks his moments. And the one spot where he actually does lose it is <laughs> um, a really well-earned moment in terms of his performance. But everyone else is screaming. Like, Duchesne is particularly awful. But um, Ian McNeese, who is an actor that I generally like and have seen him in a lot of other things and be very good in other things, uh, he's yelling everything. And both of them lose like they they fritter away any sense of reality for their characters because instead they're just these shouting clowns every time they come on screen and it's it does not work um it's my least favorite shakespeare play so far of all of them that i've seen um sometimes i will say sometimes productions can unlock them for me though like i said i didn't particularly like richard the second when i saw the first production i saw of it I didn't particularly like As You Like It when I saw the first production of I saw of it, but I have since seen different productions that have now completely unlocked those plays for me. So you never know. But I will say that those plays didn't have as much ground to make up as this one does. Yeah. It um, sounds like it, oh, an incredibly whitewashed version of a very interesting, very thorny, and like very HBO period of history. Yeah. And... If you want a better look at the lives of the Tudors, I definitely suggest the show, The Tudors. Well, I used this to put the Tudors on the TV list. <laughs> Smart. Because um, it I, is um, quite good. I, I do want to say that when it comes to Shakespeare's histories, um, a lot of people who are scholars into Shakespeare see them as kind of hit or miss. Mm. They're not like the tragedies. They're not like the comedies that have a far greater hit rate. Well, the Henry histories, VIII... The histories can go here or there. Henry VIII in particular is very rarely performed these days. Um, hmm. In fact, there's only one other production of it on the list. And who knows, maybe one will do it so far. But considering I've already talked about multiple Hamlets, multiple Macbeths, I've still got six more productions of Macbeth on the list. <laughs> <laughs> um like it is definitely not one that is uh is very often performed uh but um and i get the feeling you're not wringing your hands in anticipation to see well, another one 
I will be very interested. Like that's the thing is that productions of Shakespeare can be so wildly different from each other. And so I would be very interested to see if there is something that can be done with that play that, um, you know, there is a way where you could, you could actually kind of make it seem like state television to turn it into kind of a satire of, you know, state TV and censorship. And, you know, there's an idea there, but um, it, the Globe Theatre tends to do incredibly traditional productions. They don't do anything with costuming or staging. They don't do anything like that. Um, they just present it in the in the period costume, set in the period settings, and they just do it as Shakespeare would have done it. That's the whole thing of the Globe. It's, it's a theatre that's built to resemble the theatre that Shakespeare performed his plays in. Um, but uh, lastly, for the Shakespeare stuff, I saw The Merry Wives of Windsor. It's a comedy farce directed by Christopher Luscombe. Again, a pro shot by the Globe Theatre. And uh, this is part of the Shakespeare cinematic universe because not only did Shakespeare uh, popularise things that we now take for granted, like the biopic, like, um, like the sequel, I mean, obviously, these things have been done before him, but in terms of the ones that we still talk about today, these have got to be like the earliest examples of those that are still in the popular consciousness. But he also uh, kind of invented the spin-off. This is a spin-off from Henry IV and Henry V, uh, the uh, Falstaff Origins <laughs> That's awesome. Um, spin-off. That's cool. I, I like that. That's part of the reason why I think Shakespeare is such a figure who has remained in popular culture because he kind of invented so much again of what we take for granted Mm. in terms of language structure tone he it you can't overstate his impact um well this as as i have already indicated follows john falstaff played here by christopher benjamin the uh timeline is kind of unsure Obviously, he dies in Henry V, so it clearly has to take place before that. But whether it takes place before Henry IV or not is unclear. Um, He is in the town of Windsor, and he decides he's going to cuckold two noblemen, Ford, played by Andrew Havel, and Page, played by Michael Garner, by seducing their wives, who are only ever referred to as Mistress Ford, played by Sarah Woodward, and Mistress Page, played by Serena Evans. So uh, he doesn't go about this very carefully. He just sends them the same letter each, but with the names changed. Um, And (laughs) they have no interest in him because he's John Falstaff, but they're also very good friends with each other. So they tell each other about the letters and learn what he's done. And so they decide that they're going to fuck with him. And um, they decide to basically set him up and string him on. Meanwhile, Ford is clued in on all of this by a disgruntled servant of Falstaff and becomes very jealous, doesn't trust his life, doesn't trust his wife, and so disguises himself as a, uh, a random stranger to befriend Falstaff and try and catch him in the act, and hijinks ensue. This is incredibly airheaded and without much dramatic heft, but it's very, very funny. It's a screwball comedy in the purest sense of that term. It's got a ton of raunchy jokes, a lot of physical humour, there's just pure farce throughout all of it. Characters making fools of themselves and of each other. Um, it has a dimmer reputation than most Shakespeare plays by by uh, as a result. Like there's actually a lot of scholars that don't care for this because it is fairly insubstantial. 
um, and it was is largely believed to have been written extremely quickly because it turns out Elizabeth the first was a big Falstaff stan. <laughs> he he asked Shakespeare to put together a play about Falstaff for a festival or something, uh, and gave him like a three week turnaround. And so he not only did he invent- like, oh shit, I gotta knock this out. <laughs> not real not quick. only did he invent. Uh, spin-offs, extended universes, sequels, but also studio pressure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> love you. Love to see a pioneer at work. <laughs> he would be. He would be at home in current day Hollywood. Um, it gets criticism for being a very different Falstaff than the one that we see in Henry the Fourth, and I, I can see that. Um, he is much less the charmer and much more the uh aging Lothario and, and little else. He's not as complex. Um, but again, three-week turnaround. Uh, the dialogue is very fun and bubbly, though. The jokes feel fresh. They, they ha- I, What I mean by that is that they, they have a similar sort of structure and a similar approach that we would expect a lot of jokes currently to have. It, it feels modern in that sense. But it also feels like the kind of thing that would always be dependent on cast because it's so heavily relies on delivery of these punchlines, on delivery of this slapstick humour, this high-energy farce, that if you got a cast that couldn't deliver on that, it would be DOA. But they do have a good cast here. It's a, a very good one, frankly. Um, I will say it carries on too long. It's 140 minutes, and it's abridged from the original uh, one of these, um, the original uh, script. Um, you probably didn't need to be over two hours. Uh, Shakespeare, obviously not known for his brevity, uh, but it's also a, a smart production quite generally. It's the first time, I think, that I've actually seen one of these Globe productions change the layout of the stage in any significant way. They've kind of added this bridge that goes through the audience. It sort of The Globe stage is, is one that sort of juts out in a half circle yeah. into the audience. Well, they've added another horseshoe ring that goes even further out and so the audience are standing within the horseshoe they're standing outside of the horseshoe there's like a little bridge that the actors go over that actually the audience members can move under if they will if they wanted to um and it just gives it a bit more dynamism uh in the staging um i would very much like to see this one live because it seems like something that actually could really work if you saw it with a live audience that it would have a lot of energy that would come with it Anyways, lastly this week is the only non-Shakespeare production I have seen. It is, obviously, if we're talking about The Amazing Spider-Man 2, it's the first Amazing Spider-Man. It's a superhero movie directed by Mark Webb. It's based on the Marvel comics. Uh, Peter Parker, played by Andrew Garfield, is an orphaned teenager living with his Aunt May, played by Sally Field, and poor doomed Uncle Ben, played by Martin Sheen. Uh, he finds some stuff of his father's, who was a mysterious researcher who died mysteriously. And uh, this leads him to an animal genetics research lab of a guy named Dr. Kurt Connors, played by Reese Fans. Um, there he's bitten by a genetically altered spider. He becomes Spider-Man, uh, also falls in love with a uh, girl at his school called Gwen Stacy, played by Emma Stone. But then, uh-oh, Kurt Connors turns into a giant lizard. Um this is hugely entertaining and a very energetic reimagining of the Spider-Man franchise. Uh, I'm going to state my claim here. I prefer the Andrew Garfield movies to the um, Tobey Maguire movies. 
I know that I'm in the minority in that. I know that's not a popular opinion among a lot of Spider-Man fans. I am glad uh, to be amongst a friend. Yes. You are um, amongst friends here, Lawson. You do not need to justify yourself to us. But it's it's just got... It's just so much more fun. Like, I can't even begin to overstate how much more fun these movies are I than mean, the Maguire ones. Garfield I, just has pet. He's got pet. Yeah. He's got energy. He, well, he does just, the Peter Parker stuff, but he's also... He's cracking jokes as he's taking down criminals. He's... He's the full package. Yes. Whereas- well, it's not just that. It's like, Garfield has it. He has that quality that you always look for in an actor. Yeah. He can do it all. But even beyond that, Tobey Maguire always looked like he was about to cry. He was always <laughs> being forced into this grim, like, droopy dog territory. Um, and Like I've said before, there's never been a human being on the planet Earth more befitting the name Toby. Uh, apologies to all our listeners named Toby. The views of Harley do not necessarily reflect the views of the Long Watch and his co-host. No, when you look at him, you know it's a Toby. Okay. I'm all right. I'll leave it there. But um, it what really comes down to is it handles the angst of the character so much better. It's very smart to lean into the high school angle more. It doesn't quite go as far as Tom Holland. It hasn't quite figured out that like silver bullet of the Holland series, which is just make it a John Hughes movie. <laughs> um, but it has gotten a lot closer to the mark. Uh, Garfield is just a massive success. He's maybe a little too charming for me to really buy that he's a social outcast, but he's a movie star. He's a guy who just catches the screen every time he comes onto it. Um, the romance subplot is very well done. Stone and Garfield have plenty of chemistry. I will say I'm not a I'm not the kind of person that gets like really dialed into celebrity romances and really invested in them. But theirs is the only one that I've been like, oh no, when they broke up, like the, yeah. the only one that I was kind of, oh that's unfortunate. You see it, you see their chemistry on screen, and it's palpable. You, you, what? Legitimately, I had kind of the same feeling as when friends have broken up. When they broke, when I saw that they had broken up, it's just sort of a it's like, oh, that's a oh, shame. Oh man, I thought that was gonna. <laughs> it's just very cute together. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. I just, I just thought that that was just gonna be a thing. Um, well, oh, you better help pray to your lucky stars that Tom Holland and Zendaya don't break up because that'll oh, be like, dude, I have fingers crossed, mate. For that's ma- three out of for three, millennials and for millennials and Gen Z, that'll be like. The Beatles breaking up. Like, yeah, it's be, gonna be tragic whoa. if it happens. I don't know. I believe in them. Um, I do. <laughs> I do too. They can do it. They can make it work. Uh, something else that this movie does that I love, and I know it's something that we will go into in the discussion for the sequel, but they uh, do away with the secret keeping as quick as they can. I mean, he just tells Gwen pretty much instantly, um, which is. You know, thank God, because I know I've expressed before, I find it so incredibly tedious when any story, be it this, be it Charmed, be it anything, is like, oh, no one can know my secret. I'm at to suffer in silence. I um, have to protect I have them. To pre- yeah. yeah, it's like, I have to protect my loved ones by not giving them the full context of why it's dangerous to be around me. I just have to hope like, that they no- forget me. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being aware of the danger. Well, as I said um, in our discussion on the 2002 Spider-Man, it's bullshit anyway, because mm. <laughs> clearly he can't care very much for Aunt May then, because he's 
happy to put her in the firing line. He doesn't try and get her to stay away from him. She's had her time. She's old. Why are they always old? Why was the um, Marissa Tomeim one the first time that these that these aunts and uncles of his don't look like the Crypt Keeper? Like because Marissa Tomei is a vampire and she's kept her age very well. Well, yeah, but she's she's was cast age appropriately. She's only in her fifties. I mean, yeah. why do they keep casting seventy year olds? I don't like, especially given that you've got all this flashback stuff to Richard parker here like it so confuses the point are they supposed is ben or may his sibling or like what's going ben on is there? his brother right that's why I, it's parker you're telling okay right good point but you're telling me that <laughs> you're telling me that martin sheen's supposed to be campbell scott's brother <laughs> like his older brother yeah i would buy it if they were saying you're staying with granddad and grandma for a while <laughs> but <laughs> That's not what they're doing. <laughs> and a while turns into close How to How old was Andrew Garfield when he shot this movie? <laughs> but, you know, that is a criticism that I think can be leveled at this film. I don't think we needed another origin story. I think it would have been perfectly fine if they had just done the um, 2008 Hulk thing of just picking up when he's already Spider-Man and, uh, and going with it. I think that we all know what that storyline was i think why do we have to see that old man die in an alley every time <laughs> exactly i mean <laughs> alongside batman i think it i think don't think it's controversial to say that spider-man yeah. has the most recognizable superhero origin story of any superhero like him and batman yeah. and superman yeah. as well um like i'm not sure we needed it uh we definitely didn't need to see poor uncle ben die again and die in such a stupid way like I don't want to victim blame, but in their rush to make it as different a scenario as possible from the Sam Raimi film, they've made Uncle Ben into an idiot. Like, why does this 70-year-old guy think he's going to, like, crash tackle this this guy's knocked over a convenience store when he's got a gun? Like, for what purpose? <laughs> I, I do love uh, Martin Sheen. Not Martin Sheen. Uh, Michael Sheen here. No, Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. Michael Sheen is good omens. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Martin Sheen yeah. is the West Wing. Yeah, yeah, Martin Sheen is Charlie Sheen's dad, that's right. Um, But he's so good here as Uncle Ben, though. Like, I love that scene where Peter comes home late, and he just rips into him. And he says, mm. you left your aunt, my wife, standing there alone. Like, and that's the thing. All like, of when the actors he said act that, the shit I out felt of these. attacked. Like, I felt like I fucked up. Um... Yeah. Reese Fonts' lizard is really good, too. He is, and it's got strong CG, too. The lizard is a... a I mean, the lizard is handled as seriously as a scientist turning into, a, like, a where lizard can ever be handled <laughs> in live action. Um, the, the CGI creation is very strong until he speaks. <laughs> that's when you're kind of like, ooh, that's a bit uncanny valley. I like when he shows um, up in the lab coat with the satchel, because that, for me, is classic yeah. lizard. And it's a good idea to make Connors a colleague of Papa Parker. Like, it gives them an interesting hmm. relationship that I actually think... They it makes could the have... parents matter. Well, they could have lent into that a lot more, actually. That should have been uh. a really interesting parental role between Connors and Peter that then had a lot of emotional heft at the end. I think yeah, they could have done that Just give it a little better. more time to cook. Um, also, uh, Ifan seems frequently ADR'd. I don't quite know why, but a lot, like, especially in the scene where he first talks to Peter in his kitchen after Peter tells him who his father was, uh, like, a lot of that scene, you can very clearly see that the 
the vocals of Risa Fans were not done on the day, but Andrew Garfield's were was. I don't know whether that's maybe like an accent problem. Who knows? But um, the other thing that I'm sure I, I want to table this for a discussion of Amazing Spider-Man Two, but I really didn't need Peter Parker to have chosen one syndrome. I really mm. didn't need him to be, you know, coming from this this legacy, this sort of almost predestined thing that makes him uniquely uh, able to become Spider-Man. I mean, I know that there is some stuff in the comics, the history of the comics about Peter's parents being important people, being related to S.H.I.E.L.D. and stuff like that. But, but it's not inherently, like, DNA-based. No, and I think that the feeling of the character of Peter Parker in this day and age, the thing that makes him so effective as a character and so popular among uh, children especially, mm. is that he's an ordinary kid. Well, it's that uh, Into the Spider-Verse thing. Anyone can wear the mask. Yeah. He's not Bruce Wayne, who's a billionaire. He's not um, Tony Stark, who is this tech genius. He's not Captain America, who uh, was going through World War Two. He's just a kid in the present day, going to school. He's a bit of a nerd. He's getting bullied in much the same way that you know, especially in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that people reading comic books probably weren't that high in the social strata of things. Like, to take it and turn him into, like, this sort of boy who lived thing <laughs> is something I really question. Um, no, I do see that, yeah. But uh, you also get an excellent James Horner score, which mm. uh, I really enjoyed. Uh, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, Paramount Plus, on the Apple TV store, but not according to Just Watch, at least, on Paramount Plus proper. Uh, and also, apparently, streaming on 7 Plus. I suppose they must have aired it on broadcast TV recently, and it still hasn't timed out over there. But anyways, yes, that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? I know uh, one thing you've been watching, because uh, I apparently uh, my praise for a, a movie that I quite enjoyed rubbed off on you. You went to see it in the cinema. Yes, well, absolutely. something we were going to be going to see anyway, but we do have something to cover before we get to that. Yep. Uh, we have watched the new David Fincher pick. Uh, we have expressed before that we are David Fincher fans here on The Long Watch. Uh, we have covered several of his movies in the past before, uh, namely Seven, Zodiac, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. This is yet another one of Fincher's adaptation works, The Killer, from last year. Stick to your plan. Anticipate. Don't improvise. Trust no one. Never yield an advantage. Fight only the battle you're paid to fight. This is the creed that the killer, played by Michael Fassabender, lives by. But things don't always go to plan. After failing to complete an assassination, the killer finds himself on the back foot when his home is invaded and his girlfriend is viciously assaulted by fellow, assassin by fellow assassins The Brute, played by Salah Baker, and The Expert, played by Tilda Swinton. Now he must ensure that such a thing never happens again. To do so, he has to breach every professional standard he holds while insisting through his cold demeanor that it's still not personal and remains just business. But hey, Pobody's no effect. Fuck. <laughs> As the uh, meme around the so, goes. So, uh, why don't you say your short piece about the killer, John? Then I'll get into my uh, statements about it. I really liked this. It's cool it's efficient much like the killer claims to be himself it is very much about tension and the tension a person can hold the tension between personal and professional life the fact that he is trying to be as professional as he can be but he can't help 
stuff some stuff up. But this isn't sort of a screwball comedy like you would want it to be. This is a Fincher piece. It has an opening credit sequence with really interesting visuals. It has a nine inch, sorry, not a nine inch nails score, but a Trent Resnick and Atticus Ross score, which sounds like Fincher called them up and asked them if they had anything lying around. And they said, hey, we've got the sounds of guitar feedback and someone falling asleep on the synthesizer. And it works. The sound design, particularly in one of the fight scenes here, is just spectacular. And the choreography, again, is really, really fun. Um, but it's it's not fun in the bullet train way. It's fun in the, oh, this is... You're watching a man being punched by just another human man, but the weight it is given is that of Thanos punching a truck. <laughs> and Fassbender is also really great here as the killer. I just really had a good time with this. Uh, so, on the point that John said about sound design... They did something incredibly clever here, which is, with David Fincher's immaculate attention to detail, every time you see the perspective shift in the film, like a different shot or a different location, the sound follows suit. It is deliberate, it is precise. The entire movie has such a deliberation and pr- precision. Apparently that... every edit is accompanied by a sound. Yeah. And you don't notice it at the start, but over time you start to go, oh yeah, I see what they're doing. And it's very, very clever. I second, John, that the the world, the world's quietest fight scene, as the production team liked to call it, was phenomenal. But what I really have to praise here is the script and performance of Michael Fassbender. The killer is such a fascinating character. Because in his first scene, he is methodically going through his process as an assassin. This would be a wonderful short film, by the way. He's going through his process, discussing how if you can't deal with tedium, you shouldn't be an assassin. If you can't deal with boredom, you shouldn't be an assassin. He talks about how he only eats proteins so he can keep his fitness up. Everything he does is to the utmost perfection. But he fucking whiffs it. (laughs) At the exact moment, it actually matters. The only moment, it actually matters. And he consistently does this throughout the film. And in a world of John Wicks and all of these types of characters who are the best they are what they do, I don't think this guy is the best at what he does. I just think he's a middling talent in an oversaturated field <laughs> who is getting up himself. His that he, is that is legitimately <laughs> what it feels like. He, he pumps makes himself calls. Up. He he tries to babe Ruth it every single time he tries to do this hard shit, and he whiffs it every time. It's brilliant. It's fantastic because the crux of that is it shows you exactly how pathetic and self-centered someone in that field would have to be to be an assassin. The way he dismisses other people's lives. It, it is honestly, the, the inner monologue is so perfectly performed in this like sociopathic tone that Michael Fassbender has perfected over his career. And the script 
makes him just seem like the biggest pretentious arsehole because he's an assassin can he's, be. He's philosophizing. He's saying that, <laughs> uh, it's he's giving all of these really flimsy explanations as to why he feels like he's should be allowed to do this. He's listening to the Smiths, so you know <laughs> that he's a little bit up himself. And this is coming from a person who loves the Smiths, but he's just a bit of a tosser. Every assassin in this seems like, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, this there is, were very few sort of like it's like American. It's like American Psycho if Patrick Bateman messed up his first murder. Mm. Um, there were a couple of other actors in this, but the only other real character that I saw was uh, Tilda Swinton's the expert. She has a phenomenal monologue. And like I've said in the past, the best monologues are circular. They they end where they begin. And the best way to do that is tell the monologue like a joke. And, and funnily enough, her monologue is, is a joke. <laughs> and that is done here to perfection. And it's fucking brilliant. Like, throughout the movie, I was really, really digging it. But just on reflection, the more and more I like it, not as much as some of Finch's other work. I do think stuff like uh, Mindhunter 7, uh, Girl the Dragon Tattoo, and like Zodiac, those are masterpieces. Out and out, almost perfect movies. This one's not as good because it doesn't have that sympathetic angle, because we are from the perspective of the killer, not through the, the people trying to investigate the killer. But that gives it that different edge, uh, which I... Very much appreciate. Um, I had a fantastic time with the killer. The more I think about it, the more it sits with me. The more I really, really like it. Um, I think you get a real kick out of it, Lawson. Really, it's definitely and, going to be on the uh, list. I mean, it's hard for a Fincher movie not to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, you can find the killer on Netflix. We also, as Lawson stated, watched a movie. We took ourselves to the cinema. And we saw a movie that we heard fantastic things about. This is it's always course, one that we were going to be getting around we to. We were going to get around to it anyway, because the trailers were just fascinating. But that little push was all we needed, so we watched Poor Things, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Brought back to life by an unorthodox scientist, Bella Baxter, <coughs> played by Emma Stone, runs off with a lawyer on a whirlwind adventure across the continents. Free from the prejudices of her time, she grows steadfast in her purpose to stand for equality and liberation. I will let Harley say his piece first. I gotta love my last few years of the Oscars, giving us real buzz and possibility of victory for the weirdest fucking films you've ever seen. <laughs> uh, we've had that last few years. Obviously, uh, we had the amazing win that A Parasite had. We had the fantastic win that Everything Everywhere All at Once had, and Poor Things is up for quite a number of awards. I think it's, like, it's only behind Oppenheimer for most. It's yeah. 11 Oscar nominations. We have had discussions in the past that the Oscars look more promising now than they've ever been for the weird artists, the artists willing to take it that next level into giving us something we truly have not seen before. And what Yorgos Lathamos has given us here is the second weirdest movie of the year. Uh, in weirdness, it trails close behind Bo is Afraid. Um, because, you know, one would have to do something incredibly, incredibly bizarre to get weirder than that movie. Uh, 
I loved Poor Things. It is not only an amazing feminist piece, it is also a showcase of really, really great actors at the top of their craft. Uh, Emma Stone is a revelation here. Emma Stone, throughout the whole piece, is throwing her all into this. And you very rarely see such dedication from performers, especially in the vulnerable positions that one has to go as an actor in this role. Uh, we see an entire person's development uh, as it happens, and it is a wonderful performance. I, I cannot say better things about this. Um, I also have to give a lot of credit to the rest of the cast here. I really love Willem Dafoe here, um, but the best male supporting perform in the performance in this is Mark Ruffalo. My god, what a pathetic loser. He is utterly shameless. <laughs> utterly shameless. And he really is kind of that piece of shit. He's that kind of hot mess that is remains fun to watch, but you just know that everyone else outclasses him as a person, uh, and their willingness to go that far as an actor uh, is something that's only rivaled by, I think, who the actor currently working who's best at it, which is Nicholas Holt. This is a Nicholas Holt role, is if there's ever been one. But Mark Ruffalo really nails the patheticness, the assumed control that he had over the situations in his life and the people in those situations. Uh, but the rest of the cast is really stellar. I love the art design here. I really, really want Poor Things to get one of the production awards, either production design or costume design. I could go either way on that one. Because the world that Lathamos creates here with his team is, it's like if you got a German expressionist film and decided, hey, let's get a little weirder with this. Let's play with color. Let's do all these different things that one would do in a German expressionist film like M or, uh, What's the name of it? Cabinet Ka Dr. Caligari. Caligari, the, the perfect example <laughs> of an expressionist film. What if you got that and played with colour like they did in stuff like uh, Singing in the Rain, or Dancing in the Rain, or uh, stuff like A Wizard of Oz, and really go there. The painted backdrops are fantastic. The set design is immaculate. The costumes are immaculate. And... I don't really think I've seen a movie before that had a goose dog. Uh, so that goes a long way in my books. Uh, and the way that the movie ends is such a powerful sort of mission statement, so to speak. Um, I just have to commend everyone involved on their utter willingness to just go. To have the concept, to have that script, and just do it. Um this is not a film that could be made as for someone's first picture. You need clout behind you. And Lathamos had that clout. Emma Stone, as a producer, had that clout to make it happen. And honestly, it's neck and neck between Stone and Gladstone for uh, Best Female Actress at this year's Oscars. Excellent and year for people with Stone in their surname. Big Stone year, yeah. Uh, but I don't know. A lot of that has switched toward Stone here, which I think might be the case, because it's an incredible performance. And unfortunately, I haven't seen Kills of the Flower Moon just yet, as it was not one of our priority films. Uh, but yeah, I had a great time with Paul Things. 
this was fantastic. The style, the tone, the completely egoless performances. Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo are the standouts here. Though you have really interesting side characters. Obviously, Willem Dafoe as uh, Dr. Godwin Baxter is fantastic. He's got a few standout scenes here. Catherine Hunter shows up, who is an actor that I have wanted to see more of since we saw uh, the Coen's Macbeth, where she played the witches. And she's really interesting here. But this is Ruffalo and Stone's movie. Both of them really go to exciting places we've never seen them go to. If you needed to be reminded that Mark Ruffalo is a fucking actor, this is the movie that'll do it. His the patheticness that he portrays Duncan with is incredible. The sliminess he has, the energy he has in this performance is really, really fantastic. But Emma Stone is amazing. Bella is such an amazing creation. And as someone on the spectrum, I felt incredibly seen in relation to the way she handles social cues and social situations and the way that she learns on the go. Emma Stone, again, the movement, the vocal work, it's all in service to a really great story that touches on feminism, toxic masculinity, science, sexuality, playing God, class, cruelty, and altruism. Parenthood. There's a lot that this movie mm. is doing, but it doesn't forget to have those technical bonafides as well. The score is really inventive and really interesting. The chapter breaks are gorgeous to look at. The skies that you see, the special effects on the skies that you see are beautiful. They're gorgeous. There's depth to them. The set design, the costume design is also really great. There's this really cool old woman in this movie that Bella comes across who is just an absolute dead set legend. But when this movie wants to be serious, it really goes for it. And it is all in service of those really interesting themes. I'm going to look for more Yorgos Lanthimos movies from here on. I think he's got such an interesting eye. And it is re- watching this has really convinced me to watch The Favourite and watch Killing of a Sacred Deer and... Really go back and see that evolution mis- of his style. Am I misremembering, or um, was it uh, the lobster that kind of like rattled you? <laughs> was I haven't some- seen the lobster, but I do want to. I've wanted to, but it's sort of been on the back burner, and I think I will have a little bit of trouble. Less so now after seeing Poor Things, getting Holly to watch it. Why? I've Seems never like- said a word about the lobster. It seems like the kind of thing that would kind of give you the ick. I will what? agree with that. It does seem like the kind of movie that would bother you. Okay, you're gonna have to tell me why. I don't know oh, anything about it. It's like, it's set in this world where if you get over a certain age without finding love, you get turned into an animal. And it's like this sad sack guy at a hotel like trying to do like a singles weekend so he doesn't get turned into an animal. <laughs> Why would I be against that? It's hard for me to tell you why you would be against that without me telling you some of the things that happen in that movie. Right, okay. <laughs> but, Big and unhelpful. But seriously, I loved Poor Things, and 
Emma Stone deserves the Oscar. Mm. More than I think she's deserved any of the nominations she's gotten so far. She throws her everything into this role. So, there you have it. That's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Every day, I wake up knowing that the more people I try to save, the more enemies I will make. And it's just a matter of time before I face those with more power than I can overcome. I'm so sorry, I'm late. I had a traffic thing. Did your traffic jam have anything to do with being, I don't know, shot at by machine guns? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was implied. That was implying that. He's <laughs> a park. There he is, boy. You're gonna want to see this. Oscorp. Get you under surveillance. Why? Isn't that the question of the day? There's something you're not telling me, Aunt May. I once told you that secrets have a cost. The truth does too. My name is Richard Parker. I have discovered what Oscorp was going to use my research for. I have a responsibility to protect the world from what I know they're capable of. What is all this? The future. We literally can change the world. What about Peter? Not everyone has a happy ending. bigger than you, Peter. I made a choice. This is my path. Soon, everyone in the city will know how it feels to live in a world without power, without mercy, without Spider-Man. That was the trailer for The Amazing Spider-Man 2. It is a superhero movie directed by Mark Webb, and it is based on the Marvel Comics character. The film picks up a while after the events of the first movie, in which high school student Peter Parker, played by Andrew Garfield, an orphaned social outcast who lives with his aunt and uncle, was investigating the deaths of his parents, the research labs of Oscorp, where his father had worked as a scientist, when he was bitten by a genetically altered spider. The bite gave him superhuman abilities, and, aided by some nifty high-tensile webbing he packed into wrist-mounted shooters, Peter transformed himself into Spider-Man, taking to the streets of New York City to fight crime. Despite his powers, he was unable to prevent the murder of his uncle in a random act of street violence, and he and his Aunt May, played by Sally Field, are still adjusting to a life without him. Now, Peter's graduating from high school, alongside his girlfriend Gwen Stacy, played by Emma Stone, his only confidant when it comes to his crime-fighting activities. He can't get over the fear that he's putting her in danger, though, and the couple separate soon after graduating. It's clear Peter can't help himself, however, 
and he's unable to resist a pull that draws him inexorably back to Gwen. He's too late, though. Gwen is moving to England to attend Oxford, information Peter doesn't quite know what to do with. He has other problems, too. The city is in an uproar over the appearance of Electro, played by Jamie Foxx, a sparkly blue gentleman with the power to control electricity. Up until recently, he was Max Dillon, a Spider-Man-obsessed loner with the pathology of John Hinckley Jr. and the fashion sense of Urkel. But then... <laughs> yeah, that is the best accurate. way I've ever that. Heard is that really described. good. Yeah, he, he does feel like he would be waiting outside of Spider-Man's hotel. He feels it's like, like the kind. Whoops. Did I do that? <laughs> then, one day, really he fell into stuff. a tub of electrical eels whilst holding a live power cable, and naturally, he turned into a supervillain. Spider-Man. Spidey subdues him, but he's soon taken into the custody of Oscorp, which is under new ownership for experimentation. Peter's childhood friend Harry Osborne, played by Dane DeHaan, has assumed control of the company following the death of his father from a rare genetic disease which ultimately turns the skin green and the eyes yellow, while apparently also making it impossible to trim the fingernails. Peter goes to comfort him, but Harry confides that the, il- that the illness is hereditary and he's struggling to find a cure. Harry believes that Spider-Man's blood is the key, but when he reaches out to the web-slinger, not knowing the identity of the man behind the mask, Peter refuses to provide any. He has concerns, given that the only other known individual exposed to this kind of genetic fuckery ended up turning into a giant lizard and killing a bunch of people. He tells Harry he'll figure something out, but the guy won't wait. Desperate, he approaches Electro, still in the clutches of Oscorp's less-than-scrupulous science division, and makes him a deal. Harry will release him if he'll help kill Spider-Man. While this is nothing we haven't heard before, the results this time around might just prove to be extreme, tragic, and permanent. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I really, really like this film a lot. The Hans Zimmer score, I think, is one of the best of his career, with some leitmotifs that just make me so happy. The chemistry between Stone and Garfield, again, is fantastic. I think Electro is a particularly interesting villain, and Harry Osborn is quite interesting as well. Back behind the scenes issues around this movie notwithstanding, I think this was a swing and a hit, in my opinion. All right, you ready, Harley? Yes. Three, two, one, go. I've been ready for this ever since we started this podcast, Lawson. <laughs> you know this. This is the first movie I ever went to bat for online. It is the first hill I was ever willing to die on. And it was the first time in my life as a superhero movie fan I was on the back foot. Not the last, certainly. Well, definitely uh, not the last. I will admit the movie's faults. It is a little overstuffed. It is a little overlong. And obviously the studio's intent with the future of that franchise did not come to pass. But I'm going to do a spoiler here. I'm already pro The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Um, I really love this movie also. If anyone's looking for a podcast that tears this movie to shreds, you're not going to find it here. Turn I find around. it incredibly charming, incredibly fun. Um, Garfield is brilliant. Uh, Stone is brilliant. 
I do think that this movie has its problems. Of course it does. You've already re uh, referred to its troubled production history, and indeed it bears the scars of that all over it. I think that the villains are weaker than they could be, but overall I just find this so fun to watch. Um, it's Spider-Man. I will say I'm not sure I'm a pro, and that's only because at this juncture in time is I'm, I'm wondering, is the movie successful on the terms that it sets for itself? And that, given all of that studio interference, can I go with it being a pro? And I'm honestly not sure. This is the first time I... in a long, long time that I've gone into one of these episodes not knowing how I'm going to vote at the end. So you That's have the opportunity. The shoe I... is on the other foot now, isn't it, Harley? <laughs> Whose yes, beloved niche uh, film can <laughs> I pressure you into into trying okay. to convince me to vote in pro for. I'm going to make the case that the situation was not ideal. No. Sony wanted to become the first true competitor to the MCU's belt. They wanted to knock them down and say, hey, this is our mission statement. We have the biggest, the best Marvel hero. And Spider-Man still is that. Let's be perfectly clear. Spider-Man is Marvel. Uh. That being said, what the fuck, Sony? You can't just make plans like that. Make all these plans like that. Flinch. And I... Well, it, it, it is something that all of these Marvel competitors have done. Yeah, Is Every that they've time. done these plans, whether it's be, be the Sony Marvel Universe, whether it be the DCEU, whether it be the ill-advised dark universe and, uh, mm, universe dark monsters. universe is my favorite story of that lot like they set the plan they announce the movies they set the dates and then the first time they reach any kind of troubled water they flinch and they divert course marvel didn't it just do shows that a it just shows a serious like a backbone like, marvel didn't do that they had a hit with iron man they didn't have a big hit with hulk they didn't mm. like iron man 2 made a lot of money had a lot of backlash to it, critically and from a fan perspective. People like Thor didn't love it. People really enjoyed that Captain America movie. They persisted. They built it up. Yeah. They kept going with it. And that they is what you must do. Shaved off the sharp edges as they went along. It's, they it's the mistake. Suddenly, they didn't suddenly make Endgame two years into the schedule, you know? It's a mistake mm. that connected universes have continued to make. And it's a mistake that DC did not learn from what happened here with Sony. Obviously... The, the Dark Universe was never going to learn the, from oh, this. The Dark Universe never got off the starting. <laughs> well, they kept changing when the Dark Universe was supposed to start. Like, it was supposed to be yeah. Dracula Untold, and it was The Mummy, but Tom Cruise was going to play Van Helsing, and I don't know. Like, I, it was, <laughs> I, I do love that, that that big cast photo exists of all of yeah, those oh, movie yeah. stars that they were going to... Like, I've seen... <laughs> I saw that Tom Cruise Mummy movie. It's not terrible. Like yeah. it's not good, but it's oh. in, it's perfectly entertaining. But it's just like, that. it's it it's the same. It's like the same metaphor I used before uh, discussing how the killer acts in the movie The Killer. They're Babe Ruthing it, and they're, they're pointing at the they, outfield and they're saying that's where I'm gonna hit it. You're going to be confused because there's gonna be a fucking baseball lodged in your car windshield. That's how hard I'm gonna hit it. And that's what Sony did here. You can tell the email hack, the big Sony email hack that caused so many problems, caused problems here too, because you saw the string of movies that they were planning. 
They were planning Sinister Six. They well, were planning yes. all of these things. And which is funny because that's kind of what they're continuing on now. Well, exactly. Got Sony's Venom, always had Morbius, Madam Web, because they can't just not. They can't help themselves. They cannot help themselves. It's why we've got Craven coming out this year. A movie which, mind you, no one has ever asked for. We've got Mad I'm Web. still into Craven. A See, movie. Cra- yeah. No Craven one has would asked work for. like the David Fincher version of Craven works. The um <laughs> the dark, R rated, like deadly serious and kind of disturbing Craven's and messed up. Exactly. When you try and like I can't get right past there. the point in the trailer where the blood the, the the lion blood gets into his open wound and that gives him superpowers. <laughs> It's, Look, it's, it's like always some kind of weird animal thing yeah. with it's it's always mad science with Spider-Man. Sony Sony's current output, um, mm. Holland Spider-Man movies, which are in the MCU aside, seem unable to not resemble the Daredevils and Electras and Catwomans and well, there's also Spider-Verse of the world. Yes, well, that's true. Like that's the one area that they've actually hit it out of the park with, which seems they've actually cornered that market. Seems actually more to me like they were just distracted and paying more attention to really (laughs) nailing this Morbius one because this is going to be the big, big heavy hitter Mm. that they just let Lord and Miller do whatever they wanted to do. Um, They seemed more like they missed a bean into that than something that they actually (laughs) exactly uh, deserved to get. And and Sony has always suffered from this that they were so gung ho the moment Amazing Spider-Man 1 came out, that they started putting so much pressure on this one movie. We've got Gustav Beers, a character who shows up in both Amazing Spider-Man movies, who's just like a who wet from, part of a character. Who is, who's from a non-canonical novel, apparently? Like kind a non-canonical of. prose novel? Okay, so my understanding of The Gentleman, which <laughs> is Gustav Fears. Seriously, that's that's the yeah. that's the name of the character. Is that he's not in a lot of stuff. He doesn't really have a fundamental role for the origin of the Sinister Six because, uh, just a little hint, Goblin was never in the Sinister Six at the beginning. Uh, but he's always been like connected to Oscorp, but he's never been like a character character. You know what I mean? Mm. And well, now they've got him Nick Furying this shit. Yes, he's, they're trying exactly. It's evil Nick Fury. That's what they're trying to do here. Um, Which I like the performance. The silhouette is cool. Yeah. Well, let's but- let's. You already mentioned it, Jean, but we know a lot about the uh, the making of this movie because of the the Sony hacks that actually happened after this movie came out at the end of 2014. They happened, and among many other things, it revealed tensions between the studio and the filmmaker. It revealed tensions between the studio and Andrew Garfield. It um, revealed uh, all sorts of, like, frankly insane-sounding story ideas and spin-off ideas and all over the shop, but it also pretty crucially revealed that Sony had been in talks with Marvel about um, getting Spider-Man into the MCU in some fashion, but that uh, those talks had broken off and they had walked away from the table. And I think it's generally well considered at this point that the sheer response of that online is what literally four or five months later, that announcement comes that they're rebooting it again in the MCU. I will say that... um, I kind of remembered The Amazing Spider-Man as like, oh, because you sort of think, oh, 
Well, they they ditched it for the Holland thing. It wasn't doing as well as they wanted it to. It wasn't doing as well as they thought it would do. They decided to junk it and reboot it again. I was like, oh, okay, this movie must not have. I sort of had in my head this mm. movie had not performed, but it did. Like that, it performed. The first movie. By made, God, it performed. The seven, The first movie made seven hundred fifty-eight million. This movie didn't make as much, but it still made seven hundred and nine yeah, million. Because at the it's end of the day, it's a fucking Spider-Man film. It like, was it's going to make money. You're printing money at that point. It was the um, ninth highest grossing movie of uh, 2014. It made uh, just as much money as Captain America The Winter Soldier. Like It was pretty much on par with the MCU releases that year in terms of box office. Um, yeah. Like, did it... What was Man of Steel's gross like? Like... It was pretty good. I don't know how much exactly. It made though. more than Man of Steel. It made fifty million yeah. more than Man, well, thirty million more than Man of Steel. Um, and Man of Steel did not fail at the box office. So um, it's kind of like I'm not complaining in the end. I'm glad that yeah. Spider Man is in the MCU. Yeah. I think that Tom Holland, as much as I love Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland is is the one who actually inhabits not only. Spider-Man, not only Peter Parker, but both of them to the nth yeah. degree. Um, mm. And the way that Spider-Man was woven in with the Tony Stark stuff, with the Endgame stuff, uh, with the multiverse stuff. That no we've way got. home. Exactly. Like, we would not have never have gotten No Way Home if not for uh, all of that. And so I will, you know, I'm not complaining. But yeah. it really does feel like this sort of middle duology here trap between the Holland stuff and the Maguire stuff that this pair of films gets the shaft when yeah. it doesn't deserve it. No, it's no, got a lot working for it. The stuff that doesn't work is stuff that it's beyond the filmmaker's control. Yes. And this is what my argument is. It's important that we start off with all the studio based stuff because the difference between what you're saying is between a pro and an anti is Artist intent. Mm. What does the artist intend for this movie to be? What is the themes presented, and how well does it execute on said themes? What did Mark Webb want it to be? I get what you're saying. As opposed to what the studio wanted it to be. I get what you're saying. I respect what you're saying. Counterpoint, Justice League theatrical cut. What are you talking about? Like, if we're going to say that I need to be pro based on the intent of the filmmaker and not what the studio did to it. Yeah, Lawson, but for the theatrical cut, what filmmaker? Which filmmaker? Exactly. Because I guarantee you, it's not what either wanted. <laughs> yeah. That's a very Let's different situation, clear. I think. It's definitely not what Snyder intended. Yeah, and... I, I think you can pretty much call Joss Whedon a proxy for the studio here. Yeah. Yeah, like, absolutely. He's like, not doing any art here. No. He's... Like, in, in that scenario, I would say that Snyder is the filmmaker. Like, his is the vision, and Whedon's influence is the studio's influence. Yeah. Sure. It's uh, probably I, the yeah. cleanest example of that we've got in the last decade. Fair. I mean, we will be coming up on the DCEU at some point <laughs> we'll be this year. Um, I do think that I'm I'm open to, uh, to whatever assortment of episodes you guys would like to do on that. I have no real dog in that race. Um, I do believe thing, the Snyder Cut is necessary. Well, the one thing I think that we have to do, actually, is an, an episode on both the theatrical cut and the Snyder Cut, like a one-two. Just the case study of it. Yes. Oh, and fuck, I, I that know that you what, love seven hours. Yeah, 
I know that you right. love Dawn of I know that you love Dawn of Justice, so I suppose I like we put that one in there because that way you can talk about the introduction. Like, understand that part of this is going to be me autopsying this thing. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. But like, the I'm Dawn- going to carve into I'm going to carve into the theatrical cut. We need and to be able one, to do a post And then there's got to be, and then there's got to be. I I think if you're going to do another one, it should be Wonder Woman because Wonder Woman's the one that I think Works. that's the least <laughs> qualified success. You know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts in that. Like that's the one everyone kind of agrees with. Yeah, each other on. But anyway, this is ostensibly an episode. Back to Amazing Spider-Man episode. Two, yeah, exactly. but like you do understand the point I'm making. Here. I do. Yes, um, and. What works for me is Webb's intent. We start the movie, and this is something I've noticed basically since the third or fourth time I noticed I watched the movie. I've watched the movie a lot. Time. Time is the major symbolism here. We start the movie with a watch. We end the movie. Not We don't end the movie, but we end a very significant character in a clock tower. Well, yes. let's. And um... that's Spider-Man's greatest foe here. Well, let's Time. talk a little bit about that because that was sort of something that um, the Spider-Man movies had always, from like the '90s on, been flirting with the idea of adapting the death of Gwen Stacy. The night we Gwen have, Stacy died. You never know when a villain is going to offer you the st- sadistic choice. Well, yeah, from Green I remember Goblin doing the, the Raimi one when we did the production history of the Raimi Spider-Man. Part of it was that David Fincher was considered to direct, and he wanted to do the death of Gwen Stacy. Um, but when God, what I, that movie would have been like. <laughs> when I saw this movie for the first time, I was not as well-versed in comics lore as I am now. I don't read comics, you know. My familiarity with them has come from the films, and then in researching movies and getting involved in these universes as I've gone on, I've learned more about these sort of You also comics. absorb it by talking to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this was years before I ever met you, I saw this movie. Yeah. So I, right up until... That sudden stop. I did not know that was happening. <laughs> that is a very rough way to go. And because we went in with an inkling, yeah, I went in knowing. Well, that was um, my question to you because you guys must have must have at least thought. Well, would the studio even let them go there? The would they get away I, with going there? I mean, Gwen. <laughs> the Stacey moment I knew they were doing there. Goblin. I think Gwen Stacy being there, Goblin being there. It's a situation of. It's gonna happen. And it's Webb just was, a matter of when. Webb was no stranger to doing the iconic things. What we would understand later in the the Spider-Verse movies to be canon events. Hmm. Uh, what Webb was very interested in was canon events. Where Spider-Man loses his uncle, his parents disappear for mysterious reasons, a captain close to Spider-Man dies. And Webb was always interested in doing the canon thing. I will say it's not as vicious as I thought it was the first time around. The first time around, I was so sort of shocked by it that I was Because it like, is oh, so bloody sudden. And I thought... No final And I've words. thought all the years since that what happened was he gets the um, the web on her stomach and the sudden jolt of it breaks her back and that's what kills her. It's not. It does break her back, but what kills her is the massive hit to the head that she takes when she hits the ground. Yeah, I, I um, think... Out of Which all I of think, the things- frankly, I think that's them letting him off. <laughs> I know, sure. but the, the most iconic, one of the most iconic images in Spider-Man history is that onomatopoeia crack, mm. like right near the back of Gwen Stacy, 
after Spider-Man throws the web down to catch her. Something that has been deliberate in most versions of Spider-Man after the death of Gwen Stacy, and this is something the vast majority of writers, I'm not going to say all writers, the vast majority of writers have actually paid attention to. Every other time, if a person is falling from a great height, Spider-Man catches them in his arms, not with a web. Well, even if it had been like he got her on the arm or something, it still would have been like, boom, that arm's gone. Like, like the death of Gwen Stacy changed things. I think the... It, it, it made Spider-Man not only a more serious character, it made him a more careful character. It, it's a situation and where... It, it, it became so iconic that that's how Spider-Man operates, that in the Superior Spider-Man series, people knew that Peter wasn't Peter because Doc Ock in the, mind, in the body of Peter Parker didn't give a shit. He didn't care enough to put himself on the line. And that is the first thing that clued in to uh, Norman Osborn that Peter Parker regains his body at the end. He sees him dive down and physically catch somebody, look up, and quip at him. Norman's like, you. Like, points to him and it's like, you're back. I think like, it's this scene. Seeing this movie in the cinema, you could hear a pin drop the moment her head hits the concrete. And it was a situation of, fuck, is she? Because it is such a sudden jolt. It, it is a shock. Because... We're used to seeing a superhero save someone. We're used used to seeing, by a hair's length, someone getting out of the situation. The music in that scene. The fact that the web comes out and it forms a hand, almost, is such a gorgeous encapsulation of what he's trying to do. Both emotionally, in trying to reach out for Gwen, but also trying to save her life. And the fact that it is, as Holly said, time, ultimately, that takes her away from him. the situation right before the fall is he is stuck between Gwen and the Goblin trying to keep the gears from turning Mm. until they simply cannot be stopped and held back any longer. Time wants to happen, the gears break apart, fly everywhere, Harry gets yeeted into the wall... And Gwen falls when the gears cut the web. And a very poignant little note right at the end, when we pan out and see the clock tower, the number, the 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 time on that is the issue number of Gwen Stacy's death. Um, have you guys seen any of the stuff that came out in those Sony emails about their plans to bring Emma Stone back? Yes. Yeah. Terrible. Yes. So they had. <laughs> So one of the big spin-offs that they had announced was a female-led film, and then they were going to do some other things. But basically, um, it was revealed that they had been into in talks with Emma Stone about her coming back to play Carnage, or rather Gwen Stacy as the vehicle for Carnage. Um, Carnage, of course, the symbiote that took control of Woody Harrelson in that Venom movie we got a couple of yeah. years ago. Uh, but then she would be kind of a villain for Spider-Man, and that would have been... I don't know what that would have been, but uh, it is a take, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. I can't say that I would have hated it just because I not knowing I not, not knowing what the continuation of this this series would have been. I don't know how different it would have felt without Emma Stone around. Um, but that's a 
yeah, that's a strange take. And it's but a strange think... take to to do this storyline and then immediately reverse it in some way. If you're going to do this storyline, you've got to have at least important. a couple of sequels where she's dead. Yeah. No, I think she's meant to be kaput, dead. <clears throat> yeah. Like, for a very long time in the comics, and I'm sorry to always bring this back to the comics, but that's just where my head goes. For a very long time, there were three deaths that stayed. Uncle Ben, Bucky Barnes, Gwen Stacy. Has Gwen How Stacy did that come, turn out? Has Gwen Stacy come back in the comics? Yeah, it's complicated. Oh, don't right, get me started. Don't go into that. Don't go into that. Then <laughs> I know how then long. Then we're getting to some these websites. Weird Norman Has Uncle shit. Ben ever come back? Yeah. Uh, not in universe. No, that one has stayed solid. Honestly, canon, he is dead. That's something that they could have done real. They could have used with a real nasty heft in that Marvel zombie stuff. <laughs> If Uncle Ben just like waddles out at Peter Parker from an alley somewhere, I haven't seen, I haven't read Marvel Zombies. What? I Sorry. should get around okay. to it. I I understand what you mean by walks out from an alley, but I love the implication that they just left him there. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but like back to Amazing Spider-Man. Well, 2. just just quickly on on this Gwen yep. point, have you heard the theory that? No Way Home essentially resurrects Gwen Stacy in the Garfield timeline. Wait, why would it? Because in them saving all of the supervillains that have been uh, pulled into his universe, that now means that... Um, I Elect- didn't see no Dane DeHaan yeah, in that movie. But it means Electro's in play again. Um, yeah, but I didn't see any Dane DeHaan Green Goblin in that movie. I know, but it means Electro's in play when Dane DeHaan shows up. He's not gone into oblivion. No, because what Electro says is, after Spider-Man did what he did, he was trapped in the grid. He was trapped mm. as pure electricity before he fades away. That's what Electro says in the movie. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the whole point of that movie kind of like that they all get transported back just before their death, but they're all fixed? Yeah, I don't know how I about, don't know. about... But they also are cured of their powers. Mm. Yeah, so I, I do not see well... Jamie Foxx making any difference in the end i don't know i feel like he he would have been in on it i i reckon i believe in him <laughs> i'm he just try i'm just like you think we max talked a is lot to come in clutch that's just a lot of stairs to get up i feel like actually max probably would have tried something like he was sure. stupid enough to get up on that catwalk and try and plug in that that's live true. power cable i'm not sure it's gonna this is gonna stop him <laughs> for once an evil lab has safety railings mm. And he decides, whoops. Put it this, like, okay, this is sort of, actually, no, there's a better way to structure this. Let's, like, so we've talked about the death of Gwen Stacy. I think, obviously, this is something very big for this movie that this movie's always going to be remembered for. But yeah, that's why you, that's why Garfield and Stone are so important. Like, the whole emotional crux of actually both of these movies have been leading up to this moment and that their performances have been so good that they're, charisma and their chemistry with each other has been so good that you get to that moment and it is the punch to the gut that it is especially garfield's performance Mm. um like Like, people people walked out of that set fucked up yeah but like (laughs) when you get to the point where like the bit that gets me is the seasons changing as he's standing at Mm -mm. gwen's gravesite um the, the and and the noises that andrew garfield makes as he's cradling gwen and like all That's of, the sound. Yeah, all of that stuff. It's such a good. 
weird to say good, but it's such a good emotional payoff for that storyline. Mm. Like it hits in it's the way raw. they want it to hit. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think when No Way Home came out, I mean, No Way Home, I think in addition to being really excellent, a really rewarding payoff for people who have followed superhero movies for decades, um, it actually did, I think, do a bit of rehabilitation on the public image of these movies. Because all of a sudden there were all these people saying, oh, Andrew Garfield's so good. And I'm like, yeah, where were you in a matter? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where were you fickle people when I was alone against the Horde? <laughs> like, um, Andrew Garfield... Obviously, Garf- I'm being facetious here, but, like, you're, we're, we're three people who appreciated them yeah. from the jump. Um, we're, we're not coming back to this with, like, oh, we should have respected these performances more. And I think but- you need these scenes between Garfield and Stone where it is seemingly them riffing them kind of improvising this natural chemistry they've got they were in a relationship by this point so you are seeing this really great energy between them and it is such a compelling story that mark webb was such an interesting choice for a spider-man movie because at the end of the day action set pieces aside this is about peter and his relationships Yes. That's all and Spider-Man movies. And this is what Webb is best at. Listeners who aren't immediately able to recognize the name, Mark Webb is 500 Days of Summer. We've talked about mm-hmm. one of his movies before on this podcast. Um, but yeah, he he approaches it from a, a character and relationship first perspective. Sometimes to its detriment. I mean, I, we will get into the villains and the problems with the villains, um, but and the problems with Papa Parker and his backstory. Uh, but at the core of the film, uh, having Gwen and Peter at the core of the film as the heart of it, it really, yeah. really works so much. And like Garfield is very much, he's got that kind of like um, that, that sock puppet vibe that so, yeah. so many of my favorite Andrew Garfield performances have. He's just, he's just this golden retriever of an actor. Um, he's very emotional. Yeah. Like, some of my favorite scenes of his are the ones where the, it's the big shows of emotion. That scene where he's cradling Gwen's body, the scene where he absolutely goes off on Mark Zuckerberg in the social network. Are you still plugged in? And then you get stuff like um, quite a lot of the musical performances in uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, especially, uh, what was the name of the song? It's the one where he's alone in that auditorium. Is this real life? Like, that whole sequence is just gorgeous and it's it's when they let garfield just be that he's at his best yeah he um he doesn't he's not as regular a uh appearance on our screens as i would actually like him to be i mean he he turns up in stuff and he gets nominated for oscars and things but um he also will occasionally just disappear for years at a time and he's off in he's off doing angels in america on stage in in West End or, or He has something. a real, uh, the energy I actually think is most identifiable about him is, identifiable about him is theater kid energy. Yeah. Theater kid energy. But then he'll just, like, turn up in a random little, like, indie genre movie that doesn't even get a theatrical release, like Mainstream or, um, and just Under knock the it Silver out of the Lake. Park. Yeah, and, or, and, like, Jim, when he was playing Jim Backer in the eyes of Tammy Faye, like, phew. <laughs> <laughs> like that was a creepy performance. Yeah. Um, 
kind of because it was Andrew Garfield, kind of because there was a bit of Uncanny Valley to it. Um, yeah. But, like, he will, he makes very strange choices ever since, essentially, Spider-Man. And even, he makes even, a lot of, he makes a lot of the Radcliffe choices. Yes, that's a good, that's a good comparison. Um, Both incredibly compelling actors. He Weird does choices though. He does have a um, a very mysterious romance movie coming up between him and Florence Pugh. Like it's called We Live in Time. It's been filmed, but they keep refusing to give a plot synopsis, and that title makes me think it's something weird and wacky. They um, refuse. So, like, they've been asked to give a well, plot I don't, synopsis. Well, I don't know. Just, just like, like every time any of the trades has ever reported on it, they're like the studio's keeping the plot under wraps. Like they, they, <laughs> that's promising. Yeah. Um. He's also supposedly playing um Carl Sagan in a uh, movie about his life, which honestly interests me less than some of the other. But things I, I could, could see, see it. Yeah. Um, I could see it. I don't think we've seen the last of him in the Spider-Man suit. I think he'll no. be back in some capacity. Better um, not. Not only is he my favorite Spider-Man, that's my favorite Spider-Man suit. Mm. Like easily. Just how so, clean it clarity, is. when you say better not, do you mean we better not have seen the last of him, or you, we better not be back? <laughs> no, better not seen the last of him. Okay. That's why I said it exactly after you said what you said. The, um, there's all those rumours, essentially, especially after the No Way Home popularity that he got, um, that Sony wanted to sort of make him the centre point of some of their off-brand and which is, I think, mm. not a great deal for Andrew Garfield, but a good deal for moviegoers. <laughs> um, but like, especially yeah. after, it I would mean, make the yeah. yeah but is it sort of a monkey's paw situation? Yeah, it is. Yes, yeah. but after Morbius, they're clearly like trying to set up this sort of they're all taking place in different multiverse kind of things, and like we've not seen the Spider-Man from the Sony universes. Yeah. Like it's made very clear that. Venom and Morbius are taking place in a different world than the Tom Holland Spider-Mans. Venom especially. Yeah. Yes, makes dis- quite distinctively, yeah. Um, so I feel like... But, uh, like, I think it could be a really promising idea because it kind of... He can act as the glue yeah. I'm not conv- that anchors all these disparate things. I'm not convinced that we haven't seen the last of him in the MCU. I'm not convinced that this... Mm multiverse saga isn't going to shake out with him and Tobey Maguire coming back in some fashion. Hmm. Um, I mean, who knows, given all of the structural changes they seem to be in the midst of making over there at the moment. Um, But, hey, if Andrew Garfield, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, like, get to be on screen together in one of those things, it's like, you know, shut it down. Why even make more movies? Like, (laughs) We've we've hit hit, movie. Exactly. Um, And I also, you know... It would not surprise me. I'm not sure it would be smart, but it would not surprise me if Emma Stone came back in some capacity at some point. As some sort of a live-action yeah. Spider-Gwen or something? Yeah. I'd, I would suspect in that scenario that we wouldn't be seeing her for very long. We'd be seeing her in a cameo. And like, maybe What I'm thinking is like the Kira Knightley cameo at the end of the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie, where they're just giving everyone yeah. their happy ending, um, and she just yeah. stands on a beach with no lines. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could I could see something like that as part of like a wrap up. Um, but Emma Stone, man, mm. phenomenal, phenomenal work. This was sort of like she she got a big run from twenty ten to twenty twelve that launched her to be a movie star, 
and yeah. it was like it was easy a zombie land was actually very late 2009 but easy a zombie land the help uh and then spider-man she i like kirsten dunst nothing against kirsten dunst but Kirsten Dunst, I think, was also a victim of some of the things I don't like about those movies' tone. The sort of left her with a very bland character. Yeah. And that's not a problem that Emma Stone has. She's not. It's not a problem in the script that she's been given, but it's also definitely not a problem in her performance. Um, she. What works there is that she feels like an associate of Spider-Man's. Mm. Yeah. She feels like a contemporary because she's assertive. She... Goes after what she wants. And she she says multiple times that she is the number one science student from Midtown High, and Peter Parker's number two. And like, it's, it's Peter worth, needs her for a lot of different reasons. It's worth noting also that this is a post I Am Iron Man movie, in which mm. Iron Man had the unthink made the unthinkable decision to actually just reveal its superhero's secret identity at the end of that first movie. And it mm. was like, all of these people were suddenly like, oh, wait, we can do that. <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was like these writers and directors didn't like doing all that dancing around, Mrs. Doubtfire at the dinner playing two different roles. Mm. <laughs> like, that, they found it as tedious as I do. And all of a sudden, no one's got a secret identity anymore. Peter Parker's like the last one left standing, but he tells everyone. <laughs> Everyone finds out about Peter Parker's secret identity, and I got to say, well, when it I, comes to villains, they kind of figure that stuff out. I, on I'm their not own. even talking about that, but it's like yeah. obviously Gwen. Uh, there's her father in the first movie. Mm. Um, Aunt May definitely knows. Yeah, Aunt May definitely knows. I think Aunt May definitely knew in the Raimi trilogy as well. Um, yeah, but then obviously she wouldn't say it, but it's the knowing looks. Like they, they just like it's like um, Ned finds out immediately in the Holland one. And just yeah. in the most nonchalant way possible. May finds out in the most nonchalant way possible at the end. Uh, they give MJ the opportunity to figure it out because that actually <laughs> is part of her relationship with Peter and their development there. But they, they get through that stuff so quickly and there's none of that sort of like, I can't tell anyone what I'm, good, what I'm doing, I must suffer in silence. You know, that stuff that kind of always... I just, I've got to sigh internally at it. It's actually one of yeah. the things I don't particularly like about this movie. I get why they're doing it, especially with the, what they're working up to. And in the end, I think it works. But I am, I do kind of get like, oh God, we've got the, I can't be with you because it will put you in danger thing. Mm. Um, like that's but at least she knows why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that. And she fights against that. Yeah. That She's actually helps. pissed about it. Um, and And that's what makes those scenes work for me. Let's talk... Uh, I, I mentioned that as something I don't really connect with in the movie, and I we do need to talk about some of the things that have been the most badly affected by this studio interference. And the, the first of them, uh, let's just start off with, is the backstory. Is the Richard Parker um, corporate espionage. He's got to have been involved in something other than what they talk about in this movie, right? At the very least, that must have been the original intention. Because why on earth would he have a secret lab in a subway carriage in an abandoned <laughs> railway station? Like, they, like getting the people down there to hook that up. Must he must be like affiliated to some sort of like shield type. Exactly. Like it can't just be like. I discovered that um, Oscorp was going to use my science for bad, and so I destroyed all my research. Like, that just can't be it. Mm. There's too much 
built like he's he's hiring a private plane. Yeah. Um. He mu- he's got to have some money. He's got to have some money. But where did the money go? Why did it go- not mm. go to Peter or to Aunt May and Uncle Ben to help? Probably requisition requisition by the government. Yeah, I suppose so. You think that it had had the house at least? That's true. Um, like for me, okay. I, can there I is just say uh, th- that just reminded me of that bit about the house? We pick up at yeah. the very start with this flashback, right? It's a great flashback. But mm. he's downstairs recording this video, uh, and then he hears Peter call and he goes upstairs. We've already seen that flashback from Peter's perspective in the previous movie, yeah. and he's playing hide-and-seek with his dad when that happens. Like, he's actively finished counting and is now looking. So you're telling me that Richard Parker was playing hide-and-seek with his son and then was like, just cover your eyes and count to 100. And then he just immediately goes downstairs to record Look. this extremely important. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, I'm not a parent, but I do have young cousins. You need to distract them with something else mm. when you're doing important work. I mean, his wife's at home, though. I mean, yeah, like, I know. It's, it's, it's a stretch, but I do like the sort of continuity. Yeah. That the two moments are mirroring one another. I really like that flashback. I really like the sequence in the plane. Um, mm. I think that that is a really cool uh, little set piece that I I like Richard Parker a lot as a result of this yeah. flashback. I think they succeed in making him a guy who uh, you don't know a lot about, but you're kind of rooting for him. And when and Sally yeah. Fields ends up saying that, oh, he was accused of treason, like he was working for another country, in your mind, you're thinking exactly the same thing Peter is. That can't be true. That's not right. Yeah. And let and that was like um, also, I was kind of thinking, if Peter is graduating high school, and let's just assume that this movie is taking place in the year that it was made, um, he's 17 in 2014 or 18 in 2014, which means that Peter Parker was uploading this QuickTime video <laughs> to a server from a laptop in a plane that was using Wi-Fi with half of it exploded and opened to the air in the late I mean, 90s. <laughs> we also get, like, crazy technology, like holograms and shit. That's true. But, like, at least... So, you know, advanced scientific timeline crap. I can I can buy... I don't know why, but I but can buy... But to be fair, Peter Parker does still use Bing in these movies, which is just wild to me. Well, he did in the first movie. Doesn't he Google in the second one? He Googles in the second one because people noticed Bing yeah. in the first one and were like... Would he really use Bing? Yeah. Really? Well, that's the whole thing with all these product placements, and it's every Sony movie. The only people who use Sony Xperia are the characters in movies produced by Sony. Mm. <laughs> I don't like, think I've ever seen one of those actually live in the wild. I'm not convinced one of those they fun. exist. Yeah. I think it's a psyop yeah. that's been run on us to, you know, keep people's stock prices <laughs> at it, a certain level. You see a lot of Samsung's. You don't see Sony phones. You knocked it out of the park with the PlayStation. Stay in your lane. Like, okay, so for the whole Richard Parker thing, we have context in the comics for uh, Peter's parents not only being involved in shady stuff, shall we say. In the main comics, they were uh, connected to S.H.I.E.L.D., potentially agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, and that that's were in connection to assignments they went on. Uh, Nick Fury was actually quite close with them. Uh, in the Ultimate Universe, however, uh, it is established that Richard Parker was a scientist. He was a very good scientist. Norman Osborn 
was the person who owned the patents. But Norman Osborne was not his research partner. Kurt Connors was not his research partner. Eddie Brock Sr. was. And they worked together to develop a mad science experiment, so we say, that would cure illness, that would prevent all forms of cellular degradation, cure cancer, cure Alzheimer's, all of these really preventative things. It is simply that you have to wear a creature on your body. A symbiote. You have to become a host to a symbiote. People would recognize this as Venom, obviously, from the Ultimate Spider-Man game, but this is very much the... And the connective tissue that connects that to this movie is both Richard Parker and Eddie Brock Sr. in creating the symbiote use their own DNA. And uh, Peter Parker's parents die on a plane. Yes, that too. Uh, but that's when uh, Eddie Brock Sr. uses a cut-off portion of the symbiote to kill them. Let's talk a little bit about that alternate ending. I texted you guys, I said, mm-hmm. have you seen the alternate ending because I want to talk about it? And yeah. um, I think it's, even without having taken that alternate ending into the equation, I think it's probably uh, fairly easy to deduce from watching the movie that they intended Richard Parker to still be alive. Um, because we don't see his death, we see his wife's death, but last time we see him, he is still in the plane before it has crashed, but there is a parachute nearby. Um, But there is this alternate ending where Peter's been standing at Gwen's gravesite for five months, and then his uh, his dad just sort of sidles up behind him. It's like, hey, (laughs) son, how you doing? I know it's a bad time. Um. And obviously, like, the reason he's not come forward is because uh, he was still fleeing from Oscorp, and Oscorp now all and of And while the- Norman Osborn was alive, yeah. it's not something he'd let go. All of the Osborns are now dead or in prison. So uh, he's he's back. He thinks it's time to basically come and comfort his son, I suppose. It's a really weird scene, and I can see why they changed it's it. It's well acted. It is well acted, but it feels like it should... It feels like it should come. Um, w- I don't. It's quite just weird know how- at the end just, of the second it, movie. It's just that he walks up to him in a cemetery. Like that's the part <laughs> of it. It just feels so sudden. And yeah. you do kind of wonder with all the studio stuff. I mean, I remember hearing something about them wanting this to be a trilogy. I mean, you do wonder how much of this was accelerated, how much of this was planned. But you kind of, I, I kind of think that their original plan has to have been that that was a big, like, post-credits reveal somewhere of Richard Parker yeah. still alive. Um, and even, like, the post-credits scene of the first uh, movie seems to speak to the suggestion that this mm. is going to go in a different way than it did. Like the- Fears, is, Fears says to Corners, and you didn't tell him anything about your fa- about his father. Yeah, and but he also says, um, does the boy know what he is? Yeah, and- like, Connor's, Connor's, like, straight up threatened. The gentleman, like, if I get out, oh no, he I'm doesn't. Visiting he out. doesn't. He just says, "You leave him alone." <laughs> with it's with the implication that if he gets out, yeah. he's lizarding up again. <laughs> but like, um, there's clearly, clearly, they were trying something there. They were trying to go the, I don't know, however many of those TV shows lost, uh, flash forwards, Alcatraz, the event. They were trying to come up with this backstory that could then come in and have this big. Um, you know, they could unravel this mystery over multiple installments of 
of films, but I, I think it's hard to watch that alternate ending and to watch the story that they unfold about uh, Richard Parker in this movie specifically and believe that that was the original storyline they were going to give him. And look, most of that doesn't bother me. No. Like I said, it, it has precedent. It's well-acted stuff. What I chafe at, and what you chafe at as well, mm. we mentioned before in uh, what we've been watching, the fact that Peter's kind of like a chosen one. Yeah. That it's his DNA that makes him special, when that's not really what the case should be. And that if the spider venom is utilized by anybody else other than the Parker bloodline, it has side effects. You know what the cruelest twist would have been is if they had saved, if they had come back for a third movie and he was the Green Goblin or he was a Sandman or he was one of these people and essentially Oscorp had got him and he'd been down there with Electro in their their uh, underground research mm. labs for fifteen years. Venom. Yeah. Yes. There you go. That's exactly it. And it's um, this whole thing that ties into and you the can ultimate have, like, stuff. Well, in that way, you can kind of do like the. The black suit stuff as yeah, well. You do Darth like, there's Vader. There's a reason in why the black the suit seeks out Peter because mm. it's the Parker blood. It's he's the symbiote has grown inside of Richard Parker yeah. and just wants to be with its family. That really in a very sick way. That really does feel like something that um I don't know with what specifically, but they were clearly working towards something more than just as we said the. Hey, son. <laughs> hey, son. Or I had to go into hiding because I destroyed my research because Oscorp was going to use it for evil. Like, yeah. there's something more there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's and that, like they were going to use my research for evil. Okay, we get these hints of we get the oh we get these hints of oh it's you know scientific experiments. It's going to be gases. They're going to be doing all of these weapons research. You know, weapons research and everything. But it's like. Come on, give us something a little bit more than just that. Were you working on the symbiote? Did you develop the Dark Ark arms that we see Gustav is walking past? Like, Did you develop the Vulture Wings or the Rhino armor? Yeah. Hell, like, make him an actually kind of objectionable guy. Make him a mad scientist. Make him like that like, wacko doctor they've got down there talking to Electro. What was that actor doing? I My have gosh. no fucking clue. An he attempt at German? That was he. He walks in and he's like, he's like a cartoon character. It's insane. Yes, yeah. like, and he's head of the bug house, yeah. really. Mm. Um, he played, he said, played Galadriel's husband in the Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, uh, and I guess that's why we didn't hear him speak all that much. <laughs> um, to be fair, Galadriel's the pants wearer in that relationship. Um, that being said, the spider venom. It is implied that because it's coded solely to Peter Parker's DNA, it will have tremendous side effects to whoever ejects it within themselves. And it Case just so point, happens that it's got Harry something Oswald. thematic to do with whatever that person is going through at that point in time, be it turning them into a lizard or turning them into a strange little goblin man. The I've said before that the Green Goblin is my absolute favorite Spider-Man villain. There's something about that silhouette, the fact that with his glider... He has mastery of the sky in a way that Peter Parker could only dream of. And it's the use of military-grade technology as well as sort of madness personified that makes the Green Goblin iconic. Um, 
and I really do like the Green Goblin here. Yeah, I, I, that's a, this is as good a place as any to move on to talking about the villains. Um, I don't think we need two. I know that they're trying to follow the the Dark Knight template because we don't have three. Yeah, not really. We don't. No, I mean they're following the Dark Knight template in a way that I think a lot of movies have since that movie came out, and you had Joker and you had Two Face, and it was so effective. But fair point. Like, Iron Man 2 does it, like, a lot of these movies do it. Um, It can be done well. Electro has that fantastic scene um, in Times Square. In Times Square, which is brilliant. See, I know you want to move on to uh, Goblin and Harry Osborn and that side of things. I was going to get to Electro afterwards. I know, but I do want to... Okay, I guess we can talk about Electro afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, Electro has that fantastic scene, but otherwise, he does nothing. At all in the entire movie, mm. you could cut him completely and just have it be a movie where Harry Osborn was the the sole villain. He yeah. really plays into the plot, not at all. So it's, it's got a little bit of that Spider-Man three energy. Yeah, but like um, there's um there's also I think a a very obvious cutting down of the Goblin storyline. Um, yeah. that there's a lot of scenes on the disc that were deleted a lot more with felicity jones as his assistant who is she Felicia is the black, the black cat isn't she in yes. the comics like she is another super person um she has been involved tangentially with the sinister sex yeah. she's kind of the cat woman of spider-man is my understanding yeah, yeah. pretty much <laughs> um you've kind of got her character pegged in a hole there yeah but like there's all of that stuff there was going to be more of a romantic angle with her and uh um, Harry, Harry, then there's definitely, there's so much that they've cut from his transformation. Like, the original version of that scene has his teeth, teeth elongating, grow. then he clenches his jaws together and they shatter. Like, And then they grow back out as longer yeah. f- sort of fangs. Well, it, appara- it apparently gave children from test audience nightmares. So No they shit! Yeah, no shit! Out. But like, you see his bones breaking, yeah. homies, come on. Really close-ups shots of his bones and shoulders moving underneath his skin and contorting around. He needs that exosuit to keep himself together. Yeah. And uh, there was, like, as it's, as stands, Mencken, his, you know, uh, sort of nemesis on the board, gets away Well, he was going to die. In- he grabs his ass and drops him yes. down an elevator shaft. Um, but he, he survives in the theatrical cut. So there was all mm. of this stuff going on that, you know, and especially with how all of that is connected to his father's work with Richard Parker and Peter's been under surveillance. And you really do get the impression that whatever befell the storyline in the, the mm. backstory part of the movie, that that also had a knock-on effect with mm. the Green Goblin storyline or vice versa. Maybe Green yeah. Goblin went first and then that. So something that I noticed about Green Goblin in subsequent viewings of the movie is that when Harry takes the spider venom, his physical symptoms begin to mirror his father's Mm. much more directly. The fingernails grow. Not in a way that fingernails are supposed to grow, they grow sharp and pointed. His skin changes. His body starts to degrade. And... It is, uh, it's not directly implied by the film, but I personally do believe Norman tried the Spider-Venom. That's what made him that way. 
um i was gonna ask like has they have they ever actually said in the comics what the spider venom actually does or what it was meant to do because there's a reading that it just as this movie presents it anyway that it just accelerates the attributes and qualities that already exist okay so that in the comics in the same way it supercharges peter's powers it supercharges yeah. harry's disease uh so with the spider venom in the comics it's complicated depending on which version it was initially just a radioactive spider but it being butter boom gives him the power spider dies it's just one spider it's not as elegant as having a lion bleed into your open wound but it works no <laughs> uh, it's it's just one spider gets whacked yeah, with the radiation getting, i could get a spider and as it's sort of dying and being confused it falls onto peter bites him on the neck yeah Makes him Spider-Man. But it's the thing that's, that's like, been connected to sort of like the Spider-Verse yeah. comics, which are disconnected from the films, into the web of life. There's Spider-Man from multiple different universes, Spider-Man the War, uh Spider-Man India, uh Spider-Ham, and twenty ninety-nine. Twenty ninety-nine. There were all these different spider people, and they are connected through this mystical web of life. At the center is the Loom Keeper, and the Loom Keeper's carer, essentially, is Madame Web, who is the sort of, who is sort of like a Cassandra-type seer figure. All right. Sees the future, can gaze through the multiverse, can utilize the web of life the three, to reach out the three to of all us, of these different spider totems. The three of us have got to go and see Madame Web and Craven the Hunter, right? It's, it's Madame Web, I think, is going to be ass, but... I'm all in for Craven, personally. Because the Craven's potential. At least Madam Webb has Dakota Johnson, though. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I will go but, see... But she has said, in, she has said shooting the movie was absurd. Honestly, I will see that movie just for, just for Dakota Johnson, because um, she has a lot of goodwill for me. And in the original Spider-Verse event, characters called uh, the Inheritors, which essentially are multiversal vampires that feed on animal totem energy. So you've got animal totems like, say, rhinos, vultures, scorpions. Well, octopus. it did seem to be Stan Lee's, like, go-to, didn't it? That filtered yeah. down into everything, and everyone else at Marvel was like, when in doubt, make them a animal analogue. <laughs> yeah, lizards, vermin. Then you... Then the inhabitants are like, we are so sick of shit meat, essentially. Spider totems are that much more potent, um, which is a very cool thing because they kind of did a similar thing uh, with uh, Miguel O'Hara uh, because his powers are vampiric in nature. He has no spider sense. He cannot stick to walls. He's He has his fangs in which he can inject poison you, you and mean, drain out life force. You mean that rather than him being a Spider-Man, it's, it's more He's than an time. inheritor. It's Morbin time. It's it's yes, it's Morbin time. But uh, it's complicated. I don't even think like Kurt Connors in the first movie doesn't even touch the Spider Venom. He doesn't have access to that shit. No, it's his own experiments with cross species genetics, which are frankly going from the same sort of framework as Richard Parker's research, but going in a completely wild direction with it. Um, um, it is simply. I believe it is implied in the movie that it's something that aggravates the disease even further. Yeah. And 
Yay or nay? While on... it while it does give them strength, it costs them their life in the process. Yeah. Yay or nay on Dane DeHaan? I, I like, like Dane DeHaan here. He's for me. I struggle with some of the things that he's doing. There's parts of it where I think it's actually very well mm. done. Um, because those scenes in the boardroom, he seems out of his depth, but that's what the character is. Yeah. You know, he's just this kid. Um, but when he becomes the goblin, part of it just seems kind of really forced and performative. Mm. He nails the transformation. Yeah. In a way, well, the transformation's great, yes. Um, but like, in a, but his performance as the goblin seems, and I mean, he, he kind of had a, a rough go of it because he was coming off the back of Willem Dafoe. He only Defoe. has so long. Well, yes, but he, he has to match so Willem Dafoe. Like, he's the guy I like that we're going to compare law. this to. You see, but even that, like just there's some part of it that feels strained and forced. Mm. Um, I like the look. Yeah, like his his skin's all fucked up. His arm is half completed. The glider's really cool. And his hair's windswept back into sort of that, uh, you know how the Green Goblin in the comics has the sort of little hat thing? As he's got a mask. cap as if he's about to go to bed. It kind of has that sort of look to it. And he's got the two sort of antenna for this, that controls the suit as sort of the goblin ears. Like, I like the look. Yeah. My favorite piece of acting from Dane DeHaan is, and it's in conjunction with the amazing score uh, by uh, Hans Zimmer in The Magnificent Six, is in the boardroom meeting after Mencken is, like, expelling his ass. Like, okay. Is tr- okay, you need to rephrase that in a like, way when, where when, you don't use the when term Mencken expelling his ass. is essentially going to be like, <laughs> hey, you don't belong here anymore, you defective little freak, go. And he's about to get thrown out by security, and then he's, like, struggling against them until one moment he just stops, looks up, and you can hear in the distance the the sort of air raid sirens of the Green Goblin's theme. Mm. And then he just says, don't worry, I know my way out. Like, that's the that's the birth of the Green Goblin right there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I might just be um, being a little too hard on him because he's got to compare to Willem Dafoe. And Willem Dafoe... No I one mean, can compare to Willem he Dafoe. He was pitch perfect as the Green Goblin. I mean, that's, that's why they call him Willem Dafoe. Um, not Willem Dafoe. Not Willem Dafoe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and then him coming in in No Way Home just absolutely seals the deal. He cemented yeah. it there. Um, and I, I do like a lot of the other performance choices. I... There's always this intensity you get from Dane Han's eyes. Like, mm. you feel his desperation. Like, the moment that Peter rocks up as Spider-Man, uh, attempting to talk him down, you just see him lose his shit. And the moment Peter swings away, he curses out Spider-Man, and then he just collapses onto his couch crying. Mm. Because at the end of the day, like Lawson said, he is a kid out of his depth. Um... And I've just been he's terrified. I've just actually been looking at a bunch of um stuff for the uh you know Spider-Man stuff as we've been talking. I can't believe I didn't know about this until this moment. Did you know there is a proper full book about the making of the um Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark musical? Like yes. a proper investigatory Yes. Oh, yes, God, I need to read that. Can we have a mini-series about that, please? Does it involve any of George Santos's producing credits? <laughs> no. Wait, that was the weirdest lie. Yeah. Just... Like, I understand politicians lying about some things, but this was the weirdest yeah. one. 
it's notorious, like, dangerous. Yeah, Hollywood like uh, Broadway flop. <laughs> but I do um, like Dane DeHaan here in the scenes with between him and Garfield, where you know they're just catching up after the time Harry's uh, been away. You do sense that camaraderie between them that. There is a chemistry there, and I love the moment where he rocks up at the end after Electro's been, you know, sent to the Shadow Realm, as it were, and he just turns and he looks at Gwen Stacy. The pieces fall into place, and then he just goes, okay, so when Spider-Man said no, you mean you said no. And I, I... like that moment so much because he's like, you don't give people help, you take it away. I'm gonna take yours. I it's I a have good to say, setup to on, that scene. On Dane DeHaan's performance as Harry Osborne, the year that movie came out, we were in our first year of university in our theater degree, and one of our assignments was to perform a Hamlet monologue, no, a, a Shakespeare monologue, just any of them in general. Um. I chose the slings and arrows monologue. Like, is it better to um, suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? Suffer the slings fortune. and arrows of outrageous uh, fortune, or to take arms against them and by posing in them. That's that monologue. It happens like right uh, before the final act of Hamlet. I built my Hamlet based on Dane DeHaan's Harry Osborn, um, because I saw a lot of sort of similarities. There's something very Shakespearean about uh, the idea that he was thrown away by his father. The moment he comes back and see him, it's on his father's deathbed. His father is halfway in the ground already. And, and then he's he is handed this diagnosis. He is being haunted by his father's disease. And obviously it's not a one-to-one, but I used him as sort of the rubric I was going off of to the point that to get myself into character... I used um, Harry's suite from the Amazing Spider-Man 2 soundtrack as the way I got into character. Because it's this very, like, sweeping, emotional thing. They used a portion of it in um, the uh, deleted scene where uh, Peter meets his dad. Uh, They used a portion of it in there, and it's this sweeping, emotional thing that hits this sort of, like, emotional crescendo at the end. Um, and I just got really inspired by his performance. Because I do love that scene between him and Chris Cooper, where he's given some pretty great lines to work with. That line where he says, on my 16th birthday, you sent me a bottle of scotch, or, well, one of your assistants did. I'm pretty sure it's that, because on the card it said, with With compliments, compliments, Norman Norman Osborn." Osborn. Um, and can, that tells you what you need to know about the guy, that he's been not he's not really had a father, that he's mm. been thrown away, discarded, kind of like Harry Osborne in the Raimi films. He didn't have like Richard Parker and Norman Osborne weren't there for their children. Mm. And they have continued to suffer because of that. What Peter had was Uncle Ben and Aunt May to take care of him, to raise him, and Harry never had that. They're mirrored in that regard. Like, we get that amazing scene between Andrew Garfield and Sally Field, where uh, Aunt May is telling Peter about his father's past, and they are acting the shit out of it. It's incredible performances from both. 
Um, we've been talking for quite a while. I do feel like we yep. need to start wrapping things up. I do, just before we finish, um, want to talk a bit about the music. Though. Electro. Yeah, the music. We've talked about Electro, haven't we? No. no. Didn't we? Uh. We were going to come back to it. Right. I, I really enjoy Jamie Foxx's Electro. This is a guy who, as you said, is basically a stalker turned blue and given the powers of a god. And that is so interesting to me. Before he falls into the vat of electric eels, which, sure, Oscorp, whatever the fuck, do you do you. Mad science is your business. I'm not going to have a go at you for it. But this guy is already not okay. He's, he's already a few screws short of an Ikea desk. He is... He has these little spots where he imagines saying all the things he wants to say, just exploding at people. He gets okay, obsessed uh, did you by get, people. When we were watching this- Did you have this, the same experience that we had in the cinema watching it for the first time? In the cinema, when certain moments like that were happening, people were laughing at him. And Harley and I weren't. We were sitting there like, dude, this guy is- Like, walk on fucking eggshells around this person because- <laughs> He's inches away from bringing a gun to work. He's not I'm, well. I, I'm kind of in between. I don't like what Jamie Foxx is doing as mm. much as you guys do. I do see what you're saying. Oh, I didn't say I like it. I d- it it's a weird decision. Yeah, I did. I thought it, I, didn't, I see the point. I didn't find it funny, but I also thought that Jamie Foxx is pitching it to such a degree. He's such a mm. cartoon character. He's, he's Urkel. You know, yeah. he is from a 70s sitcom, um, not a 21st century Hollywood film. Um, that I you know can who also see it? why those people the were Keith laughing. The Keith Stanfield would have nailed it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like, just a th- get, get yourself someone like a Paul Dano. Exactly. Paul Dano, that's the energy you're looking for. Jamie Foxx is just too cool to really believe yeah. as that guy unless he goes that big. He needs yeah. to go that big to overcome the fact that he's kind of not fit to play the nerd. He's Jamie Foxx. But but I the moment he becomes blue, I I I just love his music. The fact he's that it's on oboe, that it's enemy. this really sad melody about this guy constantly beaten down throughout his life. Even if you disagree with Fox's pitching of the performance. He's much better once there. he becomes electro. Yeah, the meat's oh, there. Yeah. All all you need is there. And then, and even as he's just normal Max, you hear these voices, all of these thoughts going through his head, all of his paranoia, all of his- moments of madness, it goes into like a sharp sort of electronic thing. And like all of his anxieties are just sort of swirling in his head. And then he falls into the electric eel tank. He turns into electro. He stumbles- blindly almost towards Times Square. And then we get the electronics start to come in. We get all of these really interesting voices saying, he lied to me. They shot at me. He's using me. Electricity. Hates me. (laughs) Fragility. Electricity. Afraid of me. They're dead to me. That Spider-Man, he is my he enemy. He is my enemy. I, I do love that music. It's such a great sort of hook. And I love the idea of that sort of whispering, you know, voice in the back of Electro's head. Like, I try what... as hard as I can to ignore mm. what it's actually saying, though, because once yeah. I watched the making of documentary on the on the um, the 
disc and it was like, oh, Pharrell Williams wrote all that. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That reminds me a lot of clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. <laughs> yep. That's the <laughs> sure. sort of... What, what Zimmer intended with the music, and particularly Electro's music, was he was very fond of the idea of Greek chorus. Mm. Of getting the of the music being what is inside the characters' heads at any given time. That's why the score is so strong. It's Peter Pot like Spider Man's theme is this the solo horn. Funnily enough, the same trumpet player who played the intro trumpet to Prince of Egypt. And if you watch the behind the scenes bit about the recording of that, it's just him in this studio just absolutely playing this fanfare. And then the music turns into this really cool kind of part rock, part orchestra bit. And then you've got the rhino chase with Paul Giamatti. The song Cold War. The song Cold War, which is has these like male vo- voice choirs in the background. This... It's got this driving driving rhythm. You've got the absolutely beautiful leitmotif for Gwen and Peter. This beautiful piano piece with the strings coming in. That scene where he's trying to talk to her to convince her that he'll go with her to England. He writes, I love you in webs on Golden Gate Bridge. Not Golden Gate Bridge, but on the bridge. On one of the bridges. I don't know the bridges, which partially is Brooklyn Bridge, isn't it? Yeah, which is him yeah. saying "I love you" to Gwen, but to the other people of New York, yeah. that is Spider-Man saying that he loves them, that everything he's doing, he's doing for them. If if I was a Can person, you imagine, how, else, that. how else would you read Can it? You how else would they read if, it? If Max saw that, <laughs> oh, absolutely, <laughs> he would lose his fucking mind. But like, all of the music is he would so. Say, I Fascinating. love you. Who? I, especially in the Times Square sequence, where I think it's my favorite part of the movie. The way that it's paced, the slow-mo bit where Peter is, where Spider-Man is saving all of those people from touching the electrified rails, the uh. music, the fact that before that point, Electro's up on the screens, he's finally being seen. He's finally being recognized. Then Spider-Man shows up, and that mm. just sends him absolutely yeah. spiraling. That and another moment, part of the sp- he gets flung into that yes, billboard. You'll, you'll get a chance to discuss that in the favorite scene or sequence bit. But um, I just want to say, like, he hits the billboard, and then you just hear, afraid of me, they shot at me, they're using me, and now they're all my enemy. Bang! And then you get Johnny Marr's fantastic little guitar riff there. With the electronic dubstep, where you're just seeing Times Square go dark for... And get destroyed. One of the first times that I'm sure these people can remember. Because Times Square is one of those places which has generators upon generators. It's It's not meant... Times Square has been noted as one of the brightest places on Earth. And, yeah, I just adore that scene. When I first saw it, my jaw was on the floor. And it's partially because of the filmmaking, but a big part is Hans Zimmer. Yeah, and on the score, I also love Harry's Green Goblin theme. It's got these like air raid sirens going on. That that's really 
cool stuff to me. Every theme is distinct. It we might do... be because we've listened Join. to the soundtrack a bunch. Yes, but we need to. Yeah, we do need to wrap up. We've been talking for quite a while about this movie. Um, so uh, why don't we move on to our very fun segment where we talk about the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie that we're discussing. The IMDb Parents Guide segment is when we talk about the prudish and or pervy entries. In uh, this week, it, we've got two entries. The first of them is in uh, Sex and Nudity. Felicia has cleavage in one of the scenes. Come on, guys. <laughs> Come on. Do you think these people sit down and they look for this stuff when they put a movie on? Yes. Like, like specifically, like, yeah. the first time they watch the movie. Yeah. They keep I, their eye out for this shit. I would be stunned if there were not people out there with notepads who do who specifically do this. Like, it's that what they do. If so, if they're being really lazy about it, they could always do timestamps and be even creepier in the process. Well, some of them do. Um, That's true. <laughs> and in Frightening and Intense Sequences, now it should be said that this has no punctuation in it whatsoever, and it is one sentence. Yep. Gwen falls a long way and dies. Peter starts to cry because he was her lover. He says, stay with me. This may upset some viewers. I mean, yes? The full stop is your friend. Commas <laughs> are your friends. Use them. They are begging. That was, probably, that was probably quite painful for you to read, knowing there, how much you love punctuation. There is one comma in it. There is a comma after Gwen falls a long way and dies, but the rest of it have no nothing. Yeah. Um. So now why don't we move on to talk about who our uh, recast would be in the Muppet parody version of this movie. And again, would it be the Muppet, the Muppet Amazing Spider-Man or would it be the Amazing Muppet Man? Amazing Spider-Man. The Amazing the Muppet Muppets. Man, the way that that, or, that implies that he was bitten by a radioactive... Or the Muppet Spider-Man. The Muppet Spider-Man. The Muppet Spider-Man, because the Amazing Muppet Man implies he was bitten by a radioactive Muppet. <laughs> I would watch that movie. Actually, I, would, I, I would kind of would watch that yeah. movie. Don't get me wrong. But what's he gonna do? He that's, comes that's across someone who's kind of the perfect role for John Lithgow. He comes across someone who's robbing a car, and he just goes, "What are you doing there, Waka Waka? Um, Let me get my so, banjo. Get away from that car." I think you keep Emma Stone. Yep. Yep. I think that um, for Peter, my inclination is to give it to. Oh, I've used his name a few times now. The the new Muppet they came up with specifically Walter. for the 2011 Walter. movie. Yes, Walter. Um, the one who whistles. Yes. I feel like for Goblin, you get Scooter. So you so you get old Goblinified Scooter at the end. Yes. Jesus. And then yes. for uh, Norman Osborn, you get Statler and Waldorf like top and tailing it like in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Naturally. I see the vision. Yeah. Uh, Electro? Um, Part of me is thinking Beaker. Sweetums. Gonzo. Sweetums, because he just wants friends. We talked about this last week. Yeah, but Gonzo is right no, there. Just, okay, hold on, hold on. Follow me here. Imagine my enemy, but instead of words, it's just beakers' noises. <laughs> no, Swedish Chef. Swedish Chef. I can't see Gonzo. No, Swedish Chef is Rhino. Gonzo has too much self-confidence for ah, Electro. That's true. He can play No Way Home Electro. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Max, last time I saw you, you had a buck teeth and comb over. How about I give you a real makeover? What, you mean turning me into a lizard? Yes! Um, so, who have we got left? Felicia. Uh, well, we've got Rich- yeah, um- Janice. Janice. Uh, Richard 
and Norman Osborn. I kind of we've done Norman, but yeah. I do kind of like uh, Beaker and playing? Honeydew. I think Kermit plays Richard, and you have Miss yeah. Piggy get shot <laughs> in the opening flashback. Jesus! Yes. <laughs> uh, at this point. Are we an anti-Miss Piggy podcast? It's just, look... She's incredibly it, abusive to Kermit. Well, part of it is that we're just trying to... Like, she's such a specific personality. Yeah. And it can be very difficult to find a, a um, she's character in the movies. She's too much herself. Plus, yeah, you're dealing else. with her ego as well. If you're casting yes. her as a character. I will always also... And it's not a Miss Piggy thing. It's just a Muppet thing. I will also love the mental image of one of these serious scenes with a gunshot and just like a puff of fluff comes flying out the back of this Muppet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's always an engaging idea. No, I, it's just I, a shame the only time we've ever seen that is the happy time. Honestly, I understand, I, where, I understand where you're coming from with Sweetums as Electro, but I just can't get Electro Beaker out of my head. I and you can't have as, get that as out of Alistair, my head. Alistair Smythe, his boss, is Honeydew. Yes. Exactly. Okay, I'm on board. I'm back on board. <laughs> I, I Get can't, back in there, Beaker! I can't, me, 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 me. I can't help but think of Beaker floating there, shooting electricity at people in Times Square. That's just great to me. All right, we've spent a long time on that segment, so why don't we move on yep. to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie is Andrew Garfield. Uh, I think that he is our great missed opportunity in a Spider-Man. I think we, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. He is such a movie star in these uh, films. He holds the screen in such a complete way. He's so charismatic, so energetic. I never tire of watching him as Peter Parker and, uh, I'm really glad that post No Way Home, more people seem to be recognizing um, how good he was in that role. And I think all of the scenes where we really need a, a great performer in that role, like the scene with Gwen at the end, even the deleted scene where he sees his father again, um, he's mm. brilliant. And so I'm going to give it to him. In terms of my favorite scene or sequence, it is the Times Square sequence. I think it's a great, just in and of itself, a great little Spider-Man short film. Um, you you wouldn't need to change much to have that be like a five-minute, you know, episode of an anthology series or a short story collection or something. Like, it is uh, everything you want. It's the, the villain with kind of a tragic scientific-related backstory. It's Spider-Man coming in. It's, it's New York. It's the quippiness. It's, I mean, I love that bit at the end where he's got the firefighter's helmet on and he's saying thanks for the help big joe and like all that stuff he gets the high fives yeah like they, they clearly know each other already like it's a and the music the music is very really just it works and uh and i really enjoy that scene a lot in terms of who i would recast with this podcast patron saint character actor john lithgow i must admit i was tempted to pull a fast one here and use the one or two brief shots of archive footage that we get of Martin Sheen at the beginning of this movie <laughs> to that would um, have been a cheap move, ca wasn't? cast him as Uncle Ben so we could retroactively have him in the first one. Um, but the more and more I think about it, the more I like him as Richard Parker. The more I think that he uh, could 
fill a really interesting role in being in that part because you'd sort of bring this sort of grace and gravitas to the role of Richard Parker. You get him in that dynamite plane fight scene, and I'm always up for a bit of Lithgow in an action scene. Um, and I think he could uh, he could nail the emotional complexity of that character in the sense that he is leaving his son behind. I like that character. I find myself rooting for him, but Campbell Scott can sometimes seem a little too emotionally vacant. Um, and I would have liked to see just a, a, a tad more of uh, feeling in what that character does. And I think that John Lithgow could provide that. While same is, simultaneously also we'd get him in the first movie, um, we'd get that deleted scene <laughs> of him in the graveyard. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with him there. Uh, so for me, I'm going to have to say my MVP is Andrew Garfield. Uh, we have so few opportunities to, to say this, uh, make this choice. Um, and we've given Emma Stone her flowers before, but his chemistry with the other performers on the screen, his dedication to the role, he clearly has a great deal of love for Spider-Man and the associated characters. And he's just a fantastic actor. He he goes to the places emotionally that he needs to for the role, and he's unafraid to do so. That scene at the end where Gwen dies is gut-wrenching. The first time I saw it, I felt sick because I really do not like pe seeing people grieve like that and it felt real to me and it felt raw and honest and in subsequent viewings I can just appreciate his craft that much more I think he, he is my favorite Spider-Man he embodies all of it to me he does seem a little too cool <laughs> to be Peter Parker because at the end of the day Peter Parker is kind of meant to be a bit of a goober but I do really, really love his performance here. He's my favorite Spider-Man. I've loved him pretty much everything I've seen him in, and this is no different. Uh, I have a couple of uh, scenes of note. My favorite sequence is the Times Square sequence. It's just perfect in its form and function. It is the score working on its best level, and it's just iconic, I find. And... It's the scene that I always, always go back to and never, ever tire of. I do, however, have to give, have to give a lot of credit to that scene where uh, they're discussing the sort of ground rules before the Times Square scene, um, and all of the like playful sort of ribbing there they do from one to one another, and the fact it just feels real, it feels raw, like it's the little things that endeared them to each other as people, not just as characters. I mean the actors, but indeed the actors to one another. Um, and that little moment before the Times Square scene starts, how Peter just looks into the distance because he can feel something wrong in the air around him. Um, I just think that whole sequence is fantastic. Um, who I'd be cast with John Lithgow? It kind of has to be Richard Parker, doesn't, doesn't it? There's like Donald Menken, but he's like, just some corporate guy? Well, it's Norman Osborn. You bring him in the same way they brought Chris Cooper in, as sort of an uncredited ringer. Yeah, and while he could play that role really, really well, I like the venom coming out of Chris Cooper in there. You can tell he detests his son. For seemingly um, no good reason. <laughs> for seemingly no good reason. Um, But I do think that Lithgow would play Richard Parker really, really well. Uh, We have to sort of... Be with him the whole time. 
we have to hear the stuff that Aunt May is saying and like push back against that because that's not the Richard Parker we've seen. And I do agree that the kind of act that they've got can be a little too detached at times. I prefer someone like Lithgow who's like completely engaged 100%, no matter what kind of role he's playing. And, you know, who would you trust more than John Lithgow? Yeah, well, for me, as much as I've talked about how absolutely spectacular Andrew Garfield is, he's one of my favorite actors working, how absolutely fantastic Emma Stone is, how much I like a lot of what Jamie Foxx is doing when he's Electro, I have to give it to the thing that really captures me about this movie, and that is Hans Zimmer and The Magnificent Six. Just the score, man. It buoys what I already think is a great movie to becoming one of my favorites. My Enemy, Cold War, Harry Sweet, I'm Going to England. All of these tracks are in constant rotation for me, and they just make me happy to listen to. And yeah, I just love the score for this. I think it's one of Zimmer's best. For you mentioning the Cold War did remind me that we forgot to mention Paul Giamatti, Paul Giamatti Oscar Giamatti nominee. Right as- Paul Giamatti. There, there's a few Oscar nominees in this movie, and Paul Giamatti is one of them. Apparently, he said multiple occasions that he wanted to play Rhino in a movie, and this I was. Say get def- him, I say give him another chance. Monkey's poor situation. You have your wish, Paul. However, you're going to be in five minutes, and you have to do a bad Russian accent. Deal. He was. He was happy to do the accent. He was happy to do it. Paul Giamatti's uh, always happy to do an accent. I like Rhino here. I think he's a idiot, and that's <laughs> what he is, really. It is kind of sim- he's symbolic of Sony's hubris of all the Sinister mm. Six stuff. Yeah, really. absolutely. Um, but yeah, I give it to Hans Zimmer and the Magnificent Six, and I'm going to listen to some more of that score tonight because, particularly the uh, live version Hans Zimmer did, a uh, live in mm. Prague, uh, from that live album he released, because. Oh. Just on the note of life in Prague, just to cut in for a second, Lawson, you really need to listen to the Lion King medley they did for Hans Zimmer's Life in Prague. It is breathtaking. All right, I'll look it up. I I teared up first time I listened to it because it cried. is really spectacular. Lebo and you have comes a mu- in. and you ha- you have a much deeper connection to that movie than we do. Guys, yeah, I'm it's... really hungry. I want to go and eat dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Go on. Uh, but yeah, I think I give it to them. Times Square is my favorite sequence just because of the awe I was in the first time I saw it. And that doesn't leave me. The moment the beat drops and then comes back in with that guitar and that those ferocious synths, it just rattled my bones. And I just love that sequence so much. It's, I, I believe, the one sequence where the CGI absolutely holds up. Where, where at some later sequences... Doesn't, but I think this is a fantastic sequence. As you said, it's a short film, basically. It's a Spider-Man short film on the biggest stage of them all. And Lithgow as Richard Parker, I think, does make sense because he is sort of the big role that you wanna give him. Because you get those really heartfelt emotional scenes, the meat on the bone that he can work with. To give him Norman Osborn, I know that they were hinting at using him in future movies, bringing Norman is, back. His decapitated head. His decapitated head, head is Oscar. apparently in Oscorp for some fucked up Futurama Richard Nixon in a 
bowl reason. Uh, but yeah, Richard Parker is, I think, the best pick for someone of Lithgow's ouvroir and someone of his dramatic resonance. So, now we're going to put it to a vote. Whether or not we're a pro Amazing Spider-Man podcast or not, Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? Because you're going to be the deciding one, I think. <laughs> you know, I've been, okay, I've been how thinking... About, actually, you know what? Let's do ours first and let Lawson be the last. I, I think right. that has a bit of dramatic heft to it. Uh, okay, I don't need I don't need to say much more. We've spent three close to three hours discussing the fact I love this movie. I told you at the beginning I'm a pro for this movie. It's the first movie I ever went to bat for. This is this is a movie that inspired the way I think about movies. Uh, it got me thinking much more deeply about it, and I I love it for that. Um, it's an incredibly important movie to me in my development, and I just think it's fantastic. It's got problems, of course it's got problems, and I spoke about the problems, but I'm still pro for what it means to me. Yeah, I'm the same. I I wasn't as sort of fervent, you know, fighting against the mob as much as Harley was, because I, I don't concern myself with the opinions of people on the internet. I really couldn't, I really could care less. But this movie is so special to me, because... I just love a lot of what it's doing. The style, the pace at which it's performed, the chemistry between the actors, the comedy, the tragedy, the pathos, the score, the absolutely brilliant score by Hans Zimmer. I think he's probably my favorite composer, um, but it's a pro for me. All right. Um, I've been thinking during the, uh, the episode, I do think that this movie is not, the uh, ultimate form that it wanted to be. When they no, really started no. it, when they started <laughs> writing it and thinking about what this story was going to be, how it was going to come together, I I think that this is not what they had in mind. It sort of bears the battle scars of a lot of the follies of uh, planning a connected universe and the... It's compromised. Wars between studios and artists and... Uh, whatever the hell was going on. Um, like, I'm actually kind of surprised that we haven't had uh, a book written about the Sony hack era because there was a lot of crazy shit that came out in that. Oh, um, yeah. But... Uh, the hack itself was really nuts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so what, I'm, what I end up with is the standard that we have set is a movie... We've sort of defined the anti-vote more than we've defined the pro. We've defined yeah. the anti-vote as a as a movie that is so bad, but also shouldn't have been made in the way that it was made. And it, it, yeah. it doesn't fulfill what it wanted to do with itself. And so I do kind of struggle a little bit with getting to a pro vote on this just in terms of that. But ultimately, I can get there. I am going to vote pro because... This is a, a movie that is just so fun to watch. And I've, I've been trying to square that away with our definition of the anti-vote. And I've decided that the pro-vote doesn't need to be the, to follow those same rules. So, you know, a pro-vote can be... Um, we just like it. You know, it's... Exactly. We just like it. It it has great things about it. And it, uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to... Um, you know, reinvent the wheel or to be, you know, completely unimpeachable as a film. 
It just has to reach that threshold where it's a good it's a good yeah. movie that is enjoyed unironically, and um, yeah. So to me, I think for the for my for me, a pro vote has to be the great things about it outweigh the negatives. Yeah, and well, I yes, think this is a case. This is the difference. So. Our definition of a movie we are anti is that this movie is defined by its failings. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose the opposite like would the be... the happening. Yeah, exactly. And the opposite would be, if, you, if you're talking about pro, then it's a movie that is defined by its successes. And this is a movie that, for me, is defined by its successes. And so I'm going to say, uh, yes, I am pro. The Amazing awesome. Spider-Man 2. You've, you've given Harley a really nice start to the year. I mm-hmm. hope we continue with this energy. Uh, this is a nice energy compared to last week's. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, because that did not feel fun. Oh, by honestly, the end. dude, listening back to some of the stuff, energy—the energy was naff. I have, um, I have listened back to that, and I maintain that I was correct. But uh... that's fine. <laughs> what matters is that we agree on this count. Yes, and this count suggests that we are indeed a pro. Yeah. The Amazing Spider-Man Two: Rise of Electro podcast. If you're nasty. I'll give you this one, Harley, because I'm not sure I can give you Dawn of Justice. We'll have to wait and see. That's honestly, <laughs> Lawson, that's fine by me. This was honestly an easier one to justify. We're going I'm to still... really have to put on our lawyer caps to try and My guy, do a good I defense of Dawn of Justice. Yeah. I don't care. I didn't I didn't get nearly as much uh there wasn't nearly as much hate for this as there was for Dawn of Justice. And I really don't like the Snyder fanboys. So I'm not gonna defend it with as much fervor. I'm gonna be completely honest. <laughs> I, I still like love it. it though. I like it a lot, but you know. I understand it's I'm not problems. painting with the same brush as the the wackos. So um yeah. So if you would like to reach us, you can find us at our Twitter which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and with recommendations. What do you think about The Amazing Spider-Man 2? What do you think about the possible plans of bringing Andrew Garfield back as sort of the center of this malformed homunculus that is the Sony Extended Spider-Man universe? Uh, What is your favorite Spider-Man story? Just like an arc, I'd have to say my current at the moment is the sort of Elseworlds tale they did called Spider's Shadow. Uh... Just look that up if you're curious. Um, you can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind on certain podcast apps, it is for the show on the whole, and on others, it is for specific episodes. Uh, it is for specific episodes. Uh, for example, on like Apple Podcasts, there's a show on the, show on the whole, Podbean, specific uh, episodes. Uh, so if you are commenting on the whole, do cite the name and number of the episode. Uh, it just helps us know what you're talking about and be able to respond better. But please do like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe. I have spoken in the past about many of the creations the machines have made, the different forms the machines can take. We, of course, have mascots running around as Spider-Man, the varying different forms of Spider-Man. We even have a Spoderman that is quite beloved by the children. And he's beloved by me. He is beloved by all, pretty much. It's like one of the universal things everyone has in common. The Spider-Man is adored. When he swings, uh, he's a bit lopsided. He doesn't always land properly. He doesn't ever land properly. But, you know, um, he picks himself back up, gets he back keeps out going. there, and that's admirable. Uh, but they're not the only Spider-Men running around. There are 
man metal hybrids uh that take the form of giant mechanical meat spiders. Uh they exist in the Badlands, uh and they are unnerving to see. So Lawson, what do you have for us next week? Uh well, next week we will be doing our much anticipated, I'm sure, uh Favorite films of 2024 episode. The only award show. 2023, not getting ahead of ourselves. The only award show that matters in the end. Exactly. Um, there weren't as many late releasing films uh, in Australia Thank this God. year. <laughs> so uh, we've gotten earlier than last year, which was, I think, April by the time we finally um, got that episode mm. out. We actually could have had it out like two weeks ago, but you guys wanted a little more time to Yeah, uh, we had some stuff some to stuff still up. clean up. But oh, yes. and following stuff up was the correct choice. Uh, it's let's just say poor things has shifted the power of the uh, top ten Jean universe. Um, but uh, yes, it should be stated so that no one uh, gets too upset. This is our favorite films of the year list. It's not necessarily the best. This is not a subjective. Ra- uh, this is not an objective ranking. It is an entirely subjective ranking. Uh, basically, and we of course don't see everything. Yes, basically, uh, you should be able to, from looking at our lists, walk away from the episode having a pretty decent idea of what our tastes in movies are. Um, so yeah, tune in next week. It's gonna be a fun one. I, I have to. I have to get to compiling my list actually because this kind of crept up on me. But I am excited to get to it, because we had a really strong year. Um, but we will get to that next week. Until then, I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis. Jean Lewis.